0: Live. Live from. To this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. Wait
1: for the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle. Follow me. Follow me for
0: freedom. He already put it. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. <laughs>
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk and a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you this week. We're going to be talking more Last Dance this week. The finale aired on Sunday. A lot of good stuff in it. I actually got a chance recently to catch up with Sam Smith. You've seen him throughout the doc. He covered Michael Jordan, the Bulls, throughout the 1990s. I spoke to Sam Smith. Talked about some of his memories covering Jordan, particularly over the last couple of years of that dynasty. 96, 97, 98, sort of catching up, building off of where last week's conversation with Melissa Iason ended, sort of picking up from there, getting some memories from Sam Smith on stuff like the Jordan game, like the flu game, like the last shot, stuff like that, talking to Sam Smith in a bit. Also got a double dose of John Stanko for you today. John Stanko with me, by himself, we are recapping the finale of Last Dance. We will break down the last two episodes, get his take on the whole series, get the grade, all that good stuff. And then something I've been teasing for a little bit, John's going to do pop culture this week. We are going to go through my Netflix movie queue. Something I've teased a few times in this podcast that, you know, I have movies on there. I had 34 in the queue. John and I are going to go through all of them. He'll give me his thoughts on it. And then he's going to give me a new order, as well as some new movies to check out. So, again, he takes on a lot of films in there. It's gonna be f- Some fun stuff, for sure. But before we get to all that, I want to weigh in for a few minutes on this baseball situation, what's going on here with the labor negotiations in terms of getting back another year. Right now, they are playing out in public, which is not a good look for the sport. And we have two sides basically coming here. There's Safety issues for sure, but we have concerns about money, and that's not good for the outlook of this sport because obviously we mentioned this back in March when the season first postponed. The players and the owners agreed to a deal at the time where the players would forego half their salary, basically guaranteed only a certain amount of money for not playing any games, and if the season gets picked up, they would be paid a prorated amount. The owners are claiming that, you know what, like, we agreed to this, but there's a clause in the contract that says if there's no fans, we can renegotiate, and there are not going to be fans in the beginning anywhere, so that's a problem, and right now, there are financial issues here, because the owners want the players to take more of a risk in the situation. They are posing a 50-50 revenue split, which is not something baseball usually does. Baseball is, we don't tie the players into the revenue. We pay them a certain salaries. We pay them guaranteed contracts. The sports that are tied to revenue for the payroll, that's your football, your basketball, your hockey, those are all sports with salary caps. So right now there's a little bit of a mentality with the players who are saying, hey, the owner's trying to sneak a salary cap in here, and that's not cool. And there's also a sentence from Tony Clark put out there and said, a further cut like this is a non-starter. We are not going to entertain Talks the scenario. This is a problematic situation because relationships between the owners and the players are already not great. We've seen over the last two years where the owners basically have cut back their spending in free agency. Some players felt it was like armchair collusion, basically like negotiating and keep prices down. Nothing to be proven, but there was sort of a general feeling about it. We had that happen. We also had another troubling scenario was the whole concept of this idea that you know the players got hosed on the last cba negotiations they prioritize things like you know extra off days like better food in the clubhouse The already stuck them to the cleaners there and we have a looming labor showdown next year the current cba expires after 2021 and the players could say hey the others might be trying this in 2020, and they might try and lead the negotiations next time. Like, we need a salary cap. That might be the route they're trying to take here, and that's not good. That really is not. And I think the problem here is, A, both sides are terrible. You cannot be negotiating publicly, fighting publicly about money, at a time when you have 20 million Americans out of work. There are more than 8,000 people who have died from this virus. Nobody cares about millionaires and billionaires fighting over money. The owners know this. The owners are taking advantage of this. They know the players we consider are the bad guys for not being willing to pay. Neither side looks good because the owners are also backing out a deal they already made due to money concerns. And they are billionaires who are not going to have any physical risk to this situation. If the games start up, the owners are not going out on the road with the teams and flying in close quarters, all that stuff. They're going to be sitting in their boxes or sitting at home watching games. The players are being asked to take a lot less money. They already agreed to take a cut. They want to take even more of a cut in the hopes that, you know, somebody's better than no money. And the sad part is, is they're probably going to get hosed on this. And you will see players who refuse to play in these situations without any insurance about their safety. I mean, Blake Snell's infamous Twitch stream last week came out where he basically said, like, it's a principal thing. Like, I don't want to put myself at risk of getting this virus for much less than I normally would make. He got raked over the coals for this, and he basically came out and clarified and said, I have concern about this virus. and like, even if I'm a young athlete who can get it and withstand because I have a strong immune system I'm physically fit, I could give it to my family or. Adults in my family or children in my family who are more susceptible to it. I give it to support staff who are paid a lot less. I give it to older coaches. Like, they could get it. And those some of those people who are support staff have to travel with the teams. They don't make millions of dollars. They make a lot less. And they're putting themselves on the line for America's entertainment, basically. This whole thing is very problematic. And if the safety concerns get solved... You still might not have players like Snell around. There'll be some who might say, you know, I am you know, the depressed player. Like, I can't risk my health playing this game. You might not have some of them. But the ones you do have, they will not be happy. This thing is setting up for an all-out war. And in my opinion, if we get baseball this year, and I think we will, because I think there's be too many players who cannot afford to go an entire year on just a 4% have of their total salaries you have people playing but they're setting up for a major problem in the long run we already saw the owners basically slash the draft and outlay ha- down to 5 rounds because they didn't want to save some cash in the short run which is going to be providing major damage to this sport because you have a lot of talented players who are not going to be picking baseball because they don't want to sign for $20,000 they might go work, look for work in other fields they might go look to play other sports that's not a good long-term solution for this game. Baseball also has an issue in that they're setting up for a war here. This is not going to end well. This is a time when baseball could be capturing major market share. This is a time when baseball could be setting a positive example of the country. And I get the players' perspective. I get, You already agreed to one cut. Why would you agree to more? Why are we taking more of the baths? Or we're the ones putting our bodies on the line while the owner is just sitting in their boxes making Slightly less money than they normally would. I think something that could make sense, something that Joel Sherman posted the other day, is like, the draft has laid out a groundwork for an idea for the players to consider here. Maybe you don't take the revenue share. What you could say is, here's what we're doing. We will pay for these deferred salaries, the ones we agreed to, the prorated bonuses, prorated salaries, but if you can't pay them right now. It's okay. You can pay us down the road. You can pay us in 2021 and 2022 which is what they're doing with the draft. The draftees were signing. They're only getting a certain percentage of their signing bonus right now. The rest could be split up into two payments. I think that is an avenue the players could go down. I can see the owners being receptive to that because it would defer some of the current costs of opening the stadiums. They would not have to pay the players as much now. The players may whole later on. And the players also have to realize this as well, is that if they don't play right now, whatever cuts they think they're going to avoid by not playing a season, They'll just get pushed to the free agents who are coming out because a lot of these teams who don't make any money are going to cut payroll massively. So your middle-class free agents, they're going to be settling for one-year deals. They're going to take minor league deals just to get into camps. They're not going to get paid anywhere near what they want to. The two sides, it makes too much sense then to actually figure out something to play baseball. But this public bickering where you have the governor of Illinois saying that players are being selfish, that's not helping anything. These two sides need to be adults. Go behind closed doors and negotiate. Don't play it out in the media. This will not end well for you, especially at a time when millions of Americans are out of work or sick or worry about their own health. They do not want to hear about millionaires and billionaires arguing over money. It's a horrendous look. It's very tone deaf. You have to figure it out like adults. Hopefully they will. We'll keep track of that going forward. But up next, I will go to my conversation with Sam Smith right after this.
0: Here comes Chicago. 17 seconds. 17 seconds from game seven or from championship number six. Jordan. Open. Chicago with the lead. Timeout, Utah. Utah. 5.2
1: 5.2 seconds left. Michael Jordan running on fumes with 45 points. All right. I am joined now by the great beat writer. He used to work, cover the Chicago Bulls throughout the 1990s. Now he now covers the Bulls for the Bulls website, bulls.com. The great Sam Smith is with us today. Sam, welcome. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Hope you're doing well doing well indeed. And I'd say this Last Dance documentary has been a lot of fun to watch. And we've seen a lot of you in the documentary. So, what was it like when you got the call from director Jason Eyre to participate in it? And what was your experience like going through that film?
0: Well, a lot of me in the uh, documentary may not be good for ratings, but, uh, you know, I happen to be around all the time. Uh, the truth is, I actually thought, you know, I, I wrote this book back in the early 90s, The Jordan Rules. and you know, it was somewhat uh controversial at the time, not so much now. And uh wasn't wasn't Michael uh, Michael's favorite reading material at the time because of um you know the circumstances, uh, the way he'd marketed. And I think we've seen this in the documentary with David Falk, you know, talking about setting it up as an individual star and you know, then in and also you know, some of his leadership the views about uh kind of dragging everybody along to uh, his level of excellence excellence, which is hard to do, hard to match for anybody really. So, you know, they were and I've been traveling with the team quite a few years and you know, this has been quite a bit of infighting which is not unusual on any team Um, and and in office and probably and certainly in academic settings basically what I know about universities (laughs) and so a lot of jealousies and a lot of various behaviors and but uh, sports figures get, um, you know, get featured a lot more. Um, so I wasn't even sure they were going to talk to me, you know, because uh, Jordan's people are the executive producers and um, they kind of done a lot of interviews before they got around to me. And so I really wasn't paying much attention when they actually came to talk to me because about a year ago, and I know they'd done interviews with people I know well, Phil Jackson and a number of players and Bulls executives and, and, um, and, um, so, and then i heard they were doing a you know, hundred interviews and they were talking to celebrities and you've seen some of them, uh, the Justin Timberlake and Jerry Feinfeld. And so I figured it was going to be more than that. So I just sat down and, and, a, and a lot of these things I've been in a number of this documentary era has become popular. And I've been in a few with the Pistons and Dennis Rodman. And so usually what happens is they talk to you for an hour, an hour and a half, and they use like eight seconds of tape. And so that's what I kind of thought it was. So it actually was more of a surprise to me as I've seen, you know, so many episodes and, you know, seen more of me than, like I say, a ratings um, uh, would like as far as, you know, me in a video presentation.
1: Yeah, I know. You were a big spotlight episodes five and six. How about the Jordan Rules book you just mentioned? And we saw, like Michael said, it's like, you know, I was not a big fan of that book. And, like, was the experience covering a team different for you after the book came out? You know, yes and no. Um, uh, not completely
0: because of the book, but uh, I'd been traveling with the team three or four years. And, you know, just had, uh, we had our first child and my son was young. And, and so I was sort of lobbying to get on the NBA beat. and And, and that turned out to be. Um, a judicious time to do that. Um, but I was still around the team, obviously, quite a bit, uh, because, you know, if you're covering the NBA for, for Chicago Tribune, the Bulls are pretty much the NBA for the most part. Uh, so I had cut my, uh, you know, day-to-day travel with the team. I had basically been to every game for the pre- previous three or four years. Um, so I was still at all the home games and, um I would travel with him occasionally on the road, but I would also do some other NBA features. And it it didn't, the only thing really changed was, you know, I had a kind of a conversational relationship with Jordan before that, where uh, I could joke around. And, and so without, without discussing it, we both realized that that would be inappropriate, Um, you know, given the controversy surrounding the book at the time. And so yeah, you know, I, I was still covering the team and writing the same stories and talking to all the same people. And when I'd, uh, I'd asked Jordan questions in group settings. And by then, he wasn't really doing any one-on-one interviews anymore other than with Ahmad Rashad because he'd gotten so big and uh, celebrity had increased with the Bulls championship. And uh, so he, he had walled himself off from most, most of the media and made it in more formal sessions. And in those formal sessions... He he was great with me. He was very professional, and I'd ask him a question. He'd answer it just like anybody else. And it was anyone else answered. And sometimes, you know, it'd be oh yes, Sam, uh, so and so. So I give him a lot of credit, you know, because a lot of the players in this era tend to be very petty about that stuff. You know, Russell Westbrook with all his next question stuff, and even in, in previous eras, Rashid, Rashid Wallace was very abusive toward media and uncooperative and a lot of players have, have been And Jordan Jordan to his credit was never like that and and certainly uh, with me he would it presumably have more reason even though I never felt the book was any sort of attack it was just a diary of what what it was like behind the scenes with this team throughout the season um but uh so no I mean I was and, and I've you know, continued. I worked with the Chicago Tribune covering the team in the NBA through 2008. And now I uh, do it uh, on the Bulls uh, website, which I've been doing since 2008. So I've still been in the same place. Uh, Jordan has moved on a little bit and got a little more famous and wealthier. And, um, you know, i am been perfectly satisfied to uh, continue to be where I am and do what I do.
1: Yeah, obviously, you covered Jordan for all those years. You got to see a lot more of, like, behind the scenes stuff and the general public would like, do you feel like his depiction in the documentary the actors, of the Jordan, you remember from your days covering him?
0: I, I do because, uh, he, he's really relaxed and opened himself up for these interviews. And you can see he's sitting there with a cigar and he's got a drink, a drink, you know, on the table there. And, you know, he's, he's been, you know, joking around, uh, uh, light, uh, taking things in a light vein. um, uh, you know the flashes of the competitiveness uh, comes out uh like with Isaiah Thomas or Jerry Krause so i think it's been great because a whole generation of people never see michael jordan like this basically once his celebrity and other issues gambling and you know stuff started to become public he withdrew quite a bit and that was you know that was 25 years ago basically and so uh i think it's great for people to uh, see him as we as we saw him and we knew him in the eighties, you know, very innocent, but fun, you know, competitive, sort of like the, uh, you know, ultimate uh, president of the frat, you know, just keeping parties going all the time with the, you know, with the gambling and the competitiveness and the games and, you know, ping pong or pool or golf or whatever it was, whoever he can get to get out and compete with something cards and he would be doing it. So, yeah, I think it's been, um, you know, very openly, not revealing in a new sense, but revealing in a personal sense about, uh, you know, who Michael Jordan has, has, is really to, to the way people who are close to him see him more often.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. And I say you have a unique perspective because obviously you were there, you covered the run of that, those Bulls dynasties. Of the six title winners, like which team do you think was the best one? Was it the seventy-two win team? You think another one actually was a little better, despite a lesser record?
0: Well, in different ways. I mean, my favorite was the first one um, because of the the path that they had to take, and you saw how difficult it was with the series against the Pistons, and how uh, frustrated and uh, frustrating it was uh, to get past, and how many failures and. Well, I also thought that team was the best team, that team in the 92s championship team because of who Jordan and Pippen and Grant were at the time. You know, they were such athletic marvels uh, inc- combined with the skill level. Um, and when Jordan came back, you, you know, of course, the 95 96 team is most celebrated because of 72 wins and how dominant they were. Um, but Jordan was not nearly as, as athletic. And and. I think you'll see that in the next episode when they talk about baseball, you know, how he had to develop other muscles and, you know, how his body changed so much. And when he came back, he wasn't this tremendous defender. And, he, you know, he could do it in spurts. He wasn't this explosive offensive player, you know, smarter, uh, more skilled, you know, had a better shot. But those teams, those first couple of championship teams in 91 and 92, you know, before 93 was sort of a, you know, a difficult season because of the strain of the, you know, Pippen and Jordan having played at the uh, dream team and basically lost that summer and basically went straight through two straight years of playing every day. Um, but you had the Jordan, the, you're probably the best defensive uh, shooting guard in league history. Uh, Pippen, the best, probably the best small forward defender in league history. And Grant, who at the time was probably the best athletic defender, uh, full court, 94 feet in the league. We had those three guys at the same team at the same time in their prime. And uh, I I don't think we've ever seen or ever will see anything like that. It gets overlooked because of Michael's scoring, but their defense was so extraordinary and so suffocating that it was so intimidating for other teams. Uh, that it just led to that dominance that that kicked off that run.
1: Yeah, it did. The second half of the run was definitely, I felt, the more interesting, dramatic half. I mean, we've seen the 97-98 season. I want to ask you about, like, the 97, the flu game, which is something, given the world we're living in now, we'll never see a performance like that again, given the real-world circumstances. What do you you remember about that flu game that he had against the Jazz, the 97 finals?
0: Well, yeah, you know, it clearly was sick. I'll tell you something that nobody knows, they don't talk about much, so that'll be your little news item for me. Um I think it, what it was was altitude sickness, you know, because they, that's what the symptoms he had. It didn't sound that great, you know, and they so they uh, cast it off as the flu. Uh, but he was ill, but but the team was, wasn't staying in Salt Lake City, which was a valley. It was in a valley. They were staying up in one of the ski resorts in Park City. And at a much higher altitude, and they kept coming back and forth to practices and going back up to this resort so they'd have the pri- privacy. You know, and there's been a lot of conspiracies about this as well. You know, some, you know, waiters uh, poisoned them with bad pizzas. there <laughs> been a lot of stuff. But I think that's what it was. I, 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 you know, because the symptoms he had it seemed like that. Now, me not being a medical professional, I can guarantee it. But he clearly was ill, I remember, before the game. Uh, they were talking about him not playing. And, uh, you know, that. And that's sort of what gets lost in some sense that, you know, especially compared to this generation where they say, well, who's the greatest and this and that. He, ne- he never didn't want to play. You know, there was no load management. There was no resting. There was no taking. You check back, you, you know, he played. He never missed games. Ever and and he was playing, you know, nearly forty minutes a game, uh, all the time. And and in that game, you know, they had a little spare room. They could, they they could have waited, go back to Chicago, and give him the game off. But he wouldn't hear of it. You know, he, he said, "I'm playing." And of course, down the stretch, he hits the big three. You know, basically wins the game in the fourth quarter. You know, with his play. So you know that 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 there's a cliche they talk about in sports. And all the coaches say, "Well, we got to play 48 minutes. We played 36. You know, if we only played 48. Well, that's sort of a canard. Nobody plays 48 minutes. Well, he did. That was the difference. That's that's why he's different than the others. Because you know, from the moment he got on the court t- till he got off, he was attacking you, challenging you, uh, you know, and putting everything he did into the game. Probably why he wore himself out. You know, so so." So many times like 92, 93 and how to get away from the game and you 97, 98 as well. So, um, but yeah, it was, uh, obviously something that just added to the legend.
1: Yeah. And that legend's being, being explored in the last dance right now over that 97, 98 season. I mean, we've seen all this stuff so far. We've seen the Scottie Pippen drama about the trade demand, the contract, Dennis Rodman going off to Vegas for, in the middle of a 48 hour vacation, you were there and you saw the craziest of all this. So what was it like to cover that season, knowing that this was the end and all this crazy stuff's going off the court. They're trying to win their third in a row again.
0: Well, you know, it was the end, except if it wasn't going to be the end, you know, because Michael in 93, you know, I, I was there and he said, you know, I'm never playing again. You know, 99.9%, but you know, you're never going to see me again. <laughs> and so then we did, you know, 19 months later or whatever it was. And, uh, I knew Phil well and I knew Phil was going to take his sabbatical no matter what. And, um, you know, but Michael, I knew what he play He would play for another coach, despite what he was saying. And then he did play for Doug Collins for two years in Washington. And, um, you know, as anyone has a right to, he does too. He changed his mind. A lot of times. Wasn't going to play on the Olympics and dream team in 92, you know, he said it many times and then he did play. And so who's going to tell Michael Jordan, he can't play. <laughs> and, the, the Bulls weren't going to you know the Bull, despite whatever Krause and you know had said or uh, it, it actually it, if Phil wanted to come back and coach he could have and he would have and the truth was that that season Frank Hamblin Phil's top assistant uh, was close with Michael in the triangle Tex Winner was still on the staff so it essentially would have been much the same staff um, you know if Michael wanted to return. Uh, but I think both he and Phil recognize that, that this was, this was done. You know, as you said, uh, Scottie Pippen was off the rails with his, you know, trade talk. And I don't want to play for the bulls again. And, you know, Rodman has taken off on vacation during the season. And, you know, this is all an old team too. They're all in the mid thirties, pretty much, you know, have been through an awful lot, especially even including the last two years. And so, you know, when you're when you're doing a story, it's sort of like, you know, going to school, you know, doing your life. It's, you're just charting it every day. You don't you don't look. You don't predict the future. Uh, and so it was just like any other season, you know, with this great storyline to it that Michael got asked every city we went to. Are you, are you quitting? Are you quitting? You know, so it became repetitive and a little tiresome, you know, to him and us. You know, because every day for five months, it's, well, are you coming back? Are you quitting? <laughs> and, you know, because that's that's what the media does. does it's it been, it now. Um, and, but it, it really wasn't any different from any other season just because it was another season uh, playing out to see if they could win a championship. And given that team, it just, oh, because of the figures, Phil, Mackle, Rodman, Pippen, you know, there was just another different, Bizarre storyline. But with those guys, it was always something.
1: Yeah, it always was. And I want to ask you real quick about Jerry Krause, who we've seen throughout this film sorry, as the bad guy of this. Do you think the portrayal of Krause in The Last Dance has been fair? Or you think that he hasn't gotten enough credit for the work he did to put this team together?
0: Yeah, people ask me a lot about fair. And I, you know, I don't understand the meaning of that all the time. Um, what it, it was accurate i I would not dispute that he was difficult to deal with uh the players didn't like him um and that was that was all that was all true and but it seems to me Jerry got a lot of credit you know he 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 was he was enshrined in the basketball hall of fame he he was executive of the year twice, and so wasn't like it wasn't like what he what he did was diminished. His colleagues voted him, you know, the, the, the best in his field two times. That's, as many executives have gotten that. You know, there's there's hardly any general managers in the basketball hall of fame. Of course, that team recently. Uh, so I think it was displayed, you know, portrayed accurately in the sense that, you know, Jerry was a difficult person to get along with. Um, and probably Pushed himself like Steve Kerr said in the first episode. Couldn't get out of his own way. You know, he, he your boss is not supposed to be at your celebration party. You know, when when the players are celebrating, like in Detroit, coming back on the plane. Why is he Why is he dancing down the aisle with whoever it is? You know, you're not going to make yourself the subject of ridicule when you do that. Could you imagine? You know, a professor in your case doing that. You know, when the kids are out. You know, when you're all. Uh, you know unconscious from using drugs that's what we hear anyway no i'm just kidding or you know what, whatever it is at your office is a business office and you know whatever apple you you know or uh you, you know you, you, you think you know or or amazon you think uh jeff bezos is dancing down the aisles when they're you know when they're celebrating how many boxes they've filled or you know so get out of the way that's not your place to be and that's you know it's you know and that's why they call it the executive executive suite because it's a suite where you get to be so you know jerry brought a lot of that on himself uh he was he was a target for a lot of those years in chicago but um, a helpful one in the sense that michael and phil and others on the team used that especially michael as motivation as a way of bonding the team together. And, hey, management's out to get us, break us up, we'll show them. I think that's what Michael was doing all along, but, you know, very strategically and, you know, just a lot smarter than, you know, a lot of the other guys.
1: Yeah, indeed. And my last question for you is uh, obviously we end the era with the iconic shot over against the Jazz in the 98 finals to win the championship 87-86 game six. What are your thoughts on that as the capper of the Jordan era with the bowl? You know, he goes on to play with the Wayser. That was the last shot he ever takes at the Chicago Bowl.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. It, 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 and, and I didn't have any problem with him playing again. And if he wanted to play again now, I wouldn't be surprised if he thinks he can. Um, so I'm not a, I'm not a believer. If, you know, if it's something you do and like enjoy doing, you, you should continue to do it as long as they'll let you do it. Um, I thought that I remember, you know, when he hit the shot. I thought, you know, only Jordan gonna end, you know, can end things this way because we did think that was the end for him. Uh, at least he said it. But I, I'll be honest; like I said before, I wasn't convinced he was done um, because I'd seen him come back and change his mind from so many things. But you know, that was the narrative that was playing out. So I remember thinking to myself as I was watching this. Uh, in Salt Lake, two things struck me. One, again, the way he shut up, you know, away way an arena like in Cleveland in '89, and went went completely numb and quiet. You know, it's something you never see, never hear like that. And just thinking of you know of, of 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 all guys, you know, to finish it this way, hitting the last shot, basically winning the game. You know, I think they had five seconds left or something. Um, posing like he did, basically you know to sort of say goodbye to the fans and you know make this sort of dramatic flourish to the end of his career say goodbye to the league i uh, think of myself you know who else who else could pull this off basically script your and your your exit like he did so it it was pretty great scene but yeah you know, but, but it summarized him because what gets overlooked a lot was that sequence you know he he recognizes the play that Utah's running. So he, he comes up, gets off his man, uh, goes baseline and steals the ball from Malone. Starts bringing him up court, but doesn't call timeout. So uh, Utah, great defensive team, can't set. And gets the matchup he wants uh, against Brian Russell and hits the shot. So, you know, it sort of defines Jordan in a lot of ways. Uh, defense, IQ, offense, you know, just this dominant all-around player that he that he was.
1: Yeah, indeed. Sam, thanks a lot of time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, do I let people high-five on social media and keep up with your work for the Bulls?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm still I'm right on Bulls' uh, website, bulls.com. I, I write books, which is another you know, sort of hobby. But <laughs> uh, I did uh, Derek Rose's autobiography last year, which is called uh, I'll Show You, which is a, is, a, is a good book on Rose. And I did a history of the NBA uh, about two years ago, two or three years ago, of the 60s and 70s. Uh, which has got some great stories about that era called hard labor. So uh, those are a couple of projects I've had fun with in recent years.
1: Yeah, make sure you check those books out, people. They do sound great, Sam, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it.
0: And I'll just tell you the last thing, I got a lot of memories of I- Iona College. I played baseball at Pace University when I went to college, and we were up at Iona quite a bit, and uh, uh, I was a pitcher in a lot of miserable cold. Spring spring days up and up there, and also got to know Jeff Rulin pretty well as in the NBA. So uh, have some affection for Iona as well. All right, we'll good to talk.
1: All right, and there you have it. That was Sam Smith, the great NBA writer, covered the prime of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. A lot of great stories there. Great time talking to Sam Smith. Up next, we will dive into the finale of The Last Dance. We saved the best guest for last. He's back. John Stanko is here talking Last Dance right after this. we are back it is time to recap the finale of the last dance hard to believe that this is the end of the michael jordan run on the podcast Join me today to break it all down and discuss all of the greatness of this series the great john stanko john welcome how are you i'm doing well mike how are you doing doing pretty good i gotta say i'm very excited this is over and i, I we got all 10 episodes in us now and i'm excited just to see what's happening
2: yeah, I mean the the ten episodes. I don't think could have come at a better time. Um, I think whenever we grade this series at the end, there might be a slight curve because we all crave sport content. And credit to The Last Dance, it supplied that and exceeded all expectations. So this came at the absolute perfect time, and I think it delivered on every aspect.
1: Yeah, I gotta say, I think the fact that like you know we had all ten all ten episodes come out during this quarantine, you know, they sort of enhanced it because. The original plan if it was to sort of drop it during the NBA Finals in June, I don't think it would have had as much of an impact if it was competing with actual basketball games.
2: I I somewhat disagree with you there. I still think it would have had a major impact, and I think it would have been fascinating to watch this series if LeBron James made the NBA Finals when this was supposed to run. And I think that would have been a really fun dichotomy of the talk shows bantering between the GOAT Michael Jordan and LeBron James and wherever you put him in your all-time NBA ranking. So it, it, I think it would have been very interesting. It would have been a different conversation um, with different context. there, But I still think it would have gotten a lot of attention.
1: Yeah, I do too. And as a tradition, like I will say, we've been doing panels for this most of the time. I decided to get just you on this one because we have so much ground to cover here. And I want to get your full take on this thing. I think don't think a third voice is necessary. That's how important I think you are to the film review portion of the podcast.
2: Okay well yeah I mean I hope I can deliver I've listened to your panels with the other uh, guests that you've had and they've all been delightful I think everyone's enjoyed it so uh, I'm I'm s- kind of sad to see it come to an end because there was appointment viewing every Sunday night it was like Game of Thrones all over again where you just had to sit down and watch it
1: Yeah because I mean it's not like I mean they do have some more coming out in a couple of weeks they have Lance Armstrong a two part 30 for 30 they have the McGuire Sosa home run chase one but none of them have the impact that the Jordan one did
2: I'm most excited for the Bruce Lee one. I'm I'm the most excited for that one of all the trailers that dropped during uh during Sunday previewing what's coming with ESPN 30 to 30. That Bruce Lee one got my attention the most. I don't I don't care for the McGuire Sosa one, uh, mainly because I'm worried to see Sammy Sosa on camera. That that's my honest answer. I don't I'm worried for him, and the Lance Armstrong one. Uh, Lance Armstrong one I'm interested in, but to be honest with you, that baseball one. It didn't tickle my fancy, mainly because I'm just worried to see San Bezos appear on screen.
1: Yeah, we'll see what happens with these, but before we get into it, like I've been ask everybody every week, like, what was your knowledge base about the Jordan Dynasty coming in? Because you were a little young when the team was playing.
2: I was incredibly young, so I'll admit that it was a, a limited knowledge, uh, especially with the first of the of the two three piece. I didn't know much of anything about the first three championships that he won. Uh, I think the only knowledge I really had of Michael Jordan besides, uh, his ferocious competitive nature, uh, was the one thing that I knew for sure. Uh, as he phrased it, he's addicted to competition, which I can respect fully because I, I'm right there with him. Um, but I, the one thing I also knew is that he was a perfect 6-0 in championships and he always delivered in the biggest moments for the most part, like 98% of the time. So those, those are the only things I really knew about Michael Jordan and specifically about the Bulls themselves. Like the whole Jerry Rineshaw backstory and Jerry Krause, this is all new things for me. This is am completely, completely blank slate. And this, uh, this documentary really educated me on, on different facets.
1: Yeah, indeed. Before we go any further, I'm going to throw up the good old-fashioned spoiler warning. Okay, so if you have not seen the last three, the last episodes, of the last dance, you've not seen the entire thing. Hop on out, finish the last dance, come back, and listen to us break it down because there's a lot to discuss. John, the last last night was very good. Just like the whole series has been to this point.
2: Yeah, I, I think it was great, and I think what's most impressive is that they didn't have episode ten done until I believe it was about a week ago. Like they were still working on this and cranking them all out. Um, and I know like people had seen screeners of this and they had seen up through episode nine. So episode 10 was with fresh eyes for absolutely everybody. And, and they delivered, um, I was really, really impressed with the way they ended it and to kind of be able to wrap it in as tight a bow as they could in the end, uh, it was really well done.
1: Yeah, indeed. I liked, let's start with episode nine first. We'll start with the, they spent the hour on the Pacers series and the Utah stuff. We'll start with the Pacers series and. What was your what'd you think about the whole story about the Reggie Miller Pacers taking them seven games, how that was handled?
2: Uh, this is the one series I kind of knew a little bit about because it may have been the most modern, but I knew it was a seven game series. Uh and I had heard about the this um about Reggie Miller's uh, don't ever talk trash to black Jesus, what Michael Jordan said to him and I didn't and so this kinda of came full circle with this uh seven game series. But uh I mean this episode was fantastic for the fact i think it also kind of pinned jordan against larry bird once again kind of coming full circle a little bit um with michael jordan having to beat him or not beat him but he had great games against the celtics in the postseason um but losing efforts and then you get to face larry bird when bird to coach um this is really well done uh i think what was most incredible to me um was it the sequences at the end of Game 7 when I think Jordan acknowledges the tough test that it was, but he meets up with Larry Bird in the tunnel, and it's just like, you'll just fuck you, the dap up is so real, and that moment where you see the two competitors meet, dap it up, but you can tell inside Larry Bird, like, oh, I got the final word, but I respect it. And then Michael Jordan has to give him the one last scab of, hey, go work on your golf game, and just saying that how this season's over and Jordan's still going. All that competition coming back to that buttery camaraderie in the tunnel, uh, that is what really did it for me with this uh, with this episode and, and the Pacers game seven.
1: Yeah, I love that holster. I'm glad you brought up the Reggie Miller clip because one of the two sound bites I do have for today. So let's listen to Reggie Miller talking about his experience at Michael Jordan. And MJ didn't shoot the ball particularly great. So I was like, yeah, you're Michael Jordan? The guy that walks on water? You know, he looks at me. Michael Jordan at the foul line comes up shooting good second half I had like two points he ended up with a lot more back out to Jordan Michael lean in shot 13 footer good
0: (laughs) and I remember him walking off the court
1: he was like don't ever talk trash to black Jesus (laughs) (laughs) I mean as soon as I heard that like that is just so iconic like that has to be on the soundboard today
2: Yeah, I mean, it's an iconic line. I mean, Michael Jordan was the greatest of track soccer of all time, arguably. Uh, And I think that I kind of show it there. But you know what I really do respect is, I didn't realize how fierce a competitor Reggie Miller was. And I think he acknowledges, and all athletes acknowledge, you have to have some sense of arrogance about it. You have to have some sense of confidence, thinking that you can win no matter what. But Reggie Miller really did impress me and kind of intimidate me with still the way he talked about it, how he faced he still thought his team was better. He still thought he had a chance. He still thought they should have won. He didn't back down at all. So I will say I have a little bit of newfound respect for Reggie Miller, seeing him play on the court and back it up. And while uh, while they didn't get it done, I think Reggie Miller kind of rose up my personal whatever basketball individual rankings, whatever. But seeing that competitive fire in him on the court against MJ, I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, this might be a case where the age is a bit of a difference here. It's like I obviously have a lot more memories of Reggie Miller. I also remember as a Knicks fan, Reggie Miller broke a Knicks hearts so often in like the late '90s, early 2000s with these big dagger playoff shots and all that. Reggie Miller, one of the great competitors there, another guy who we mentioned many times, another guy who had like key parts of his prime basically robbed by Michael Jordan in the Bulls. He, oh uh,
2: yeah, he was robbed. I mean, I think also Jordan deserved to win when he did. Um, but I mean, I think. What Reggie Miller said at the end of his section of this of this episode nine was that he referenced the championship DNA that was in the Bulls and they just knew how to pull out a win. There there is something to that championship DNA of knowing how to win and not letting anything to beat you. And then, I mean, you're going to hate me because I bring out the Patriots, but it's what the Patriots had with Tom Brady so often is you don't think you're going to beat them ever because they always find a way to get it done. And that was the Bulls, and Reggie Miller admitted to that fact going, there's something real to that be the DNA that NJ and the Bulls have.
1: Yeah, that's one of the storylines we got in episode 9. Another one, we went back to the 97 finals of the Utah Jazz, and we got the backstory of the flu game, and I want to play this here, and I did pull this, the second audio clip I pulled from this one. I had the backstory here that afterwards I want to discuss because I don't think that they were being truthful here. Well, let's go to this.
0: No room service. Michael gets hungry. So, all right. So, we're calling all these different places. George and I are looking around. We find one pizza place open. One. So, he ordered a pizza. And uh, when the pizza came, there was four or five guys outside the door. Five guys delivering one pizza. You know, it's very rare that you get five delivery guys from you know the pizza place to bring you your pizza. And they're all trying to look in, and you know, everybody knew his my so I take the pizza, I pay, I pay them, and I, I put this pizza down. And I, I said, I got a bad feeling about this.
1: I eat the pizza all by myself. Nobody else eats it. Eat the pizza.
0: I wake up about 2.30, throwing up left and right. 3 o'clock in the morning, I get a call. My roommate, man, come to the room right now. All right, I get into him. He's literally curled up in a ball,
1: shaking. This man, find a team doc now. So it really wasn't the flu game; it was, it was food poisoning. Number one, I want to give Mad Mike props to Michael Jordan for dousing an entire pizza at like midnight. That's pretty dope. But I want to say I, I, you have never done that before? Not at midnight.
2: Oh my God, Mike! I if I order a pizza, no matter what time of day, I'm eating a large by myself.
1: Now that's just a full <laughs> meal. Yeah. yeah. so Michael
2: Jordan's one of us. He, he's someone who douses a late, uh, late, late large pizza by himself. I respect it. Yeah, I the said most relatable i this whole thing.
1: Yeah, I said mad respect to that. He definitely deserves that for the pizza, but I mean, I talked to Sam Smith earlier in the podcast. He is throwing cold water on the flu game theory. He thinks it's more of an altitude poisoning thing, and that's something I didn't mention is that they were not staying in the like they're not staying in Salt Lake. So they're staying up in one of the uh, ski resorts for privacy. So they were going back and forth on the altitude practice. And Sam Smith believes that Jordan actually had altitude sickness, not a case of food poisoning or the flu like where do you fall in this debate
2: i don't think it was altitude sickness uh because if it was altitude sickness why would they tell any story about about the pizza arriving or the flu i mean there was i've never heard that theory besides um personally so i while i think altitude and the difference that altitude can exacerbate whatever problems someone's having medically like make it worse i do believe that but i don't think it's the main as to why NJ was sick and throwing up at 3 in the morning. But in terms of this, I, I don't know why you don't buy it. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I'm i not sure I believe a 100%, but I'm like 75% believing it. Uh, why are so many people telling this story if it's not true? And for me, the most convincing part is that Michael Jordan's mom is also, in, if you believe it's a lie, is in on the story, in, in on the lie. Um, but I, I believe them to be telling the truth about this. And while it's not as sexy as the flu game, I mean, if you've ever played any sports with food poisoning like I have, it's the absolute worst thing in the world because you're never knowing if you need to run to the bathroom or if you're running after a ground ball. And, like, for me, playing softball with stomach poisoning is the worst thing in the world. If you dive in the outfield, you'll land on your stomach, you're going to be having a medical emergency. Um, so I, I buy it. I, I, I don't think it's untrue. I'm curious as to why you do. I,
1: yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there's been so many conspiracies with this, and this is sort of like a fitting with the whole narrative of, like, we're going to paint the... Why motivation now? Michael has motivation because the Jazz like fans tried to poison him as and tainted his food, so he couldn't beat them. Like I could see that being more of an employable narrative for a story like this than oh, altitude sickness or oh, the flu. Like I think this is creates more of a dramatic intrigue to this story as well.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was poisoning uh, because one, I'm sure when they ordered the pizza, they probably used the fake name. There's no way they actually said the pizza from Michael Jordan or anyone on the Bulls. I really highly doubt they did that. And the thing is, like, you had bad pizza. You could if, depending on what type of pizza you get, you get bad cheese, you get bad meat that you put on the pizza. I don't think it was purposely poisoned or anything like that. I've been deathly sick with food poisoning in a hotel before and like I almost got carried to the ER. So it can happen when you're eating something that you think may be the safest thing to eat. So I, I buy this story and I it's still immensely impressive what he did when he had this food poisoning, when they when they needed a muffling in.
1: Yeah, the one reason why I think they might have been, there, something had to have happened to get them, tip them off that Jordan was there, because otherwise, as you said, why are you having five guys deliver one pizza in the middle of the night in, in Salt Lake City? That, that that is true, and I bet you it was the address that
2: that they had to give the pizza delivery to. They'd probably look that up, going, "Oh, that's this hotel. All the Bulls are staying there." So that's what I bet. That's what I bet it was. But can we say one thing about this food poisoning game or flu game, whatever you want to call it, is that how did one Jerry Sloan, the way they went to commercial saying he didn't know NJ was sick. One, how do you not know NJ is sick when that's literally anyone is like, that's the only thing people are talking about, whether it be in the arena, whether it be on TV, how do you not know he's sick if that's the truth? Two, if you know he's sick, how did you not use that to your advantage? And and I mean, when we get to the 98 championship, I think it's another major blemish on Jerry Sloan for not attacking Pippen in Game 7 where Pippen couldn't move. So either Jerry phone's playing really dumb and he just stuck to his guns. He didn't want his team to seem to adjust anything because he didn't want, he didn't want to tell them that Jordan was sick or if he actually didn't know either way, it's not a good look.
1: Yeah. The jazz fans did not have a good look at their team last night. They did not look pretty between that and Jordan dissing Byron Russell again. It was not a good look for them.
2: I mean, and I think it's one thing that I think is funny is in episode 10, which we'll get to, they interviewed uh, Jordan kids and, Uh, They said their mom didn't let them go. They had to watch the game in the basement because uh, Utah is is tough on the fans. And when NBA players talk now and they talk about the nastiest fans in the NBA, they still mention Utah. They still mention that they're secretly the dirtiest and the meanest fans out there. So I guess it was still the case in the late 1992.
1: Yeah, it was. We'll touch on one more story from episode nine, which was we got the Steve Kerr backstory and we got learned a lot about the like tragic passing of his father. He was killed in Le- in Lebanon, and he was a professor at American University over there. I gotta say, my respect level for Steve Kerr increased dramatically throughout this series.
2: I mean, I knew nothing about Steve Kerr's father and backstory—nothing. So this blew me away. But I mean, I-, I agree with you, Steve Kerr. He was already at a hundred percent approval rating. Nobody disliked Steve Kerr. If you did, you were an animal. Or an just, I mean. I guess that's true, but it's uh, like, Steve Kerr's approval rating now is higher than anyone could talk to. with was a story, he was so good throughout the whole entire series, the way he smoked, the way, you could tell the way he spoke, he was raised by academics, people who cared about education. Everything he said was so thoughtful. Frankly, he and Barack Obama sounded a lot alike throughout this series in the way they talked and the way they eloquented their ideas. Um, but that Steve Kerr story was so, so well done. And the way they tied it into the actual series about him getting that final shot and earning his wing. But maybe there was no better moment in this entire series for me, arguably, than when Steve Kerr telling the story about getting the phone call about his father being dead, and he just ends the story with, so yeah. That that pause was so heartbreaking. It was a gut punch as if you're right in the field. And it's only two words with a hand in between it. But the way he said it, you could just tell he's holding back emotion trying to appear strong, but oh my it shot me goosebumps right in the field.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, definitely a gut punch there. And we get, you get, you say we get the, the it set up the triumph of Steve Kerr hitting the winning shot in the '97 finals, and then I love them going back to the parade, him going telling the story, dramatizing himself being the hero. And, oh well, Steve's got a bit, Kerr's got a MJ again. I thought that was hilarious.
2: Dude, he was a stand-up comedian. He had the crowd in the palm of his hands. He's got to be giving Bill Burr lessons on how to control the crowd like that. It was saying he had him in the palm of his hand. It was an awesome championship speech. I hadn't heard that before either. It's fantastic.
1: It was fantastic. Like Those are the three main points I want to hit on for episode nine. So let's go to episode 10. And it, a lot of this series on the jazz, but I think we had to touch on the Robin moment where Robin skips practice after game three to go down to, I think, WCW Nitro, and then we find out the next day that like he go. This is from behind the scenes footage that was the crew had where he ducks the media. The PR he was they sneak him out of the back of the arena. We see him basically make a mad dash for freedom while all the the press is waiting in the main corridor. This was fantastic.
2: This as a as a professional in the athletic communications field, I resonated with Tom Smithberg, who was the assistant director of communications for the Bulls so badly with this scene. I was like, oh man, I've been in your shoes. Not to the same extent, but I know what you're feeling. Um, but yeah, this is Rodman's skipping practice. Mike, nice. let me ask you this. Do you ever play hooky from school or from work?
1: Oh yeah, everybody has.
2: Okay, everybody has, right? Have you ever had great of a hooky day as flying charter to go to a night nice pay pay-per-view back on the beach, hang out with Hulk Hogan, be part of the NWO, get to hit a chair over somebody's head, drink smoke cigars, fly to private plane, and then hang out with Carmen Electra and then not really get punished the next day in practice,
1: at least from this documentary footage, that's the greatest day of hooky of all time. I, right? it's, you can't top that. Well, I mean, his, his 48 hours in Vegas is pretty close.
2: I mean, that, that's fair, but that was like he was allowed to go. Right? That wasn't hooky. That was like they gave him permission. This was he just left. Didn't tell anybody.
1: Yeah, it takes a special kind. I guess Phil Jackson knew he had to let Rodman be Rodman to get the best out of him.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about MVPs of this series, and there's, I mean, you could there's a bunch of lists for MVPs, but the way Phil Jackson was able to handle Dennis Rodman might be up there as a, the most difficult thing any coach has ever had to do. Uh, but yeah, this Rodman escaping the arena, I loved every bit of it. I, my view, thinks that they had an escape route for the players in every arena that they went to if they didn't want to speak to the media. Do you think the communications team have, like, like bank robbery diagrams going, like, all right, here are the secret passes. We need to escape this way, that way.
1: Oh, I do buy that. It's like starting the rock size that team had. I could definitely see there's a day where me, like, Scotty says, you know, I don't want to talk to the media today. Like, I can see him saying, okay, Scotty, go out the back door here, make a left down the down uh, down the, down the tunnel here, and go, and go down three flights of stairs. It'll be out in the street, and one will know you're there. Yeah, I, I, I need those diagrams for every arena.
2: Yeah. I want to know if they have the blueprints to their
1: escape. I'm sure they do. I can't wait to see that. And speaking of the security personnel, I do want to touch on also the security guard, Gus Lett. We got his story last night about how, about how close he was to Michael Jordan, how Michael really was by his side when he was having cancer treatments. So he sort of came like a second father to him. I think that's, stuff like that we got more of in this series really helps humanize Jordan. I did love this part of the story.
2: Yeah, it was really good. I, again, Michael Jordan kept on saying before this came out that this series would make make people not like him. I don't know how that's possible. I only I knew the lore of MJ and I loved his legacy of competition, but now I respect man so much more. And I think it was in episode nine when Gus said that MJ gave him the game ball from Game Seven against the Pacers. I believe. Yeah. Was that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that was incredibly emotional. And you could tell that Gus was incredibly touched that MJ thought to do that. And I mean, everyone needs a father figure in their life. When MJ's dad tried to be passed, Gus was there to pick up that mantle. And it, again, like you said, it humanized Mike so much. And that those are the backstories that nobody really knew about unless you were really entrenched with the team. But those are the things that now the public is aware of that. No way that would come to light without this series.
1: Yeah, they don't. And we spent a lot of time in this series also this last episode on the last series with the Jazz including that incredible sequence the way they showed us the final shot of game six I liked the way they went down the court and they basically gave you Pippen's perspective on the play Rodman's perspective on the play Phil's perspective on the play and then we get Jordan breaking down how like he didn't really push off a a Byron Russell and Bob Costas agreed with him I didn't agree those I don't think that was a push off that was clear Russell lost his footing and Jordan's having to place his hand there I, I love that moment. I love the behind-the-scenes stuff afterwards. I mean, we're getting a Game 6 movie tomorrow on Wednesday night. It's going to be awesome when they go behind the scenes, incorporate the game footage in HD with The Last Dance, like, back story material. I think it's great. I love also also get following through the locker room celebration, Carmelo Malone showing Ultimate Class, going on the bus to shake MJ's hand after he loses. Great stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, this whole the whole last, uh, 30 minutes of this documentary really encapsulates in this final 40-second stretch. Um, I, I mean, can I tell you the first thing I thought of when watching this play is that, man, defense leads to offense. Defense wins championships. It was a defensive play that got them to win, so they got the trip. Uh I mean, that, that was preached in my head as a kid, and it's really funny how that came to be. But for me, in this last sequence, what was so good about it was the moment. When after Jordan made the shot, and they follow him to the bench, and he's just sitting there with a towel over his shoulders, staring straight forward, and the camera is zooming in on his face to the scoreboard back to his face, and it's quiet, right? The only thing you hear is that one single piano piece that's slowing down, slowing down, slowing down to eventual silence, which you can tell is Michael Jordan just clearing his head, knowing what he needs to do, and focusing on the moment. And this voice by the director and the editing team is incredible because the piano was foreshadowed in game five when they talked about NJ having the piano in his room and how he woke up, played the piano, had a few beers, had a cigar, then went to practice. And then you see at the end of the documentary, you see him playing the piano in front of in front of friends, in front of camera, and just he's holding court at the piano. So they they already hinted to the audience about the idea of the piano, then they stuck it in the back of their mind during this final play sequence, during the, the final moments of this final pick championship, and then they have it at the end, him holding court at a piano with everybody watching him. because so let's be real. Everyone came to watch the concert of MJ when he's on the court. That decision-making and that just direction and that editing was unbelievably good. I watched that sequence three different times live on Sunday just to kind of understand how they did it. It's just a simple shot of, the, of the, the close-up, the profile of his face. But the sound, the
0: audio, the music that
1: went with it, just Kent, like, just beautiful. Yeah, it was fantastic, and I did like the like. I did like a uh, person on Twitter. Oh, wizard stuff. I'm like, no, like we ended right where we need to be. We ended with the breakup of the team, and we did get confirmation from Jordan that like if they didn't break his team up, he would have come back and played another year with, Ch- with Chicago and gone for the seven straight wing. I did find it fascinating we got from Reinsdorf that he did actually offer Phil Jackson a chance to come back, but Phil said no because I needed a break. I didn't want it. It would have been bad with Krause because Krause clearly made a big point of saying Phil's done. I just think it's fascinating. We could have had a run for the seventh title with the Bulls, and I think considering that year was the lockout year and they had to play 50 games, I think it's a great chance they could have done it again if they brought the gang back one more time. Listen,
2: I think the 50-game lockout makes it more difficult uh, because there would be more games compacted into a shorter time, and that team was already old. So while there's less games and, and stuff like that, I think that I think it would have been tough for them to deal with it physically. Mentally, they would have been fine. No worry about their mental But Physically, that was, that was an older team, and even if they got hit back, I'm not entirely confident that, that they would have done it. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an NBA expert and say, who would have won instead, and which team was younger, which team was hot, and stuff like that. But I, I'm not as confident that they would have won it in that shortened season because I think the physical toll of playing so many games in quick succession would have been really difficult.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to point out as somebody who like really left, was locked in that 99 season, the Knicks made the finals out of the East as an eight seed that year, like, and they barely got in. And they clicked. They turned on the uh, after the playoffs got hot, and then lost to the Spurs in in, in uh, five games there, but. I think if you get Jordan just in the playoffs, then the mentality takes over, and then they win again. That's my personal belief.
2: I mean, well, yeah. I mean, anything can happen in the playoffs. When you have Jordan, you have that mystique. And to be fair, people, when they go against them, they're, I don't want to say intimidated, but you know that you're going against an immovable object. You're going to have to do something magical to get by it, which literally nobody could do once he started winning in the postseason. Nobody could stop him. So anything could have happened. I'm not saying they would not have won it, I'm just saying I'm not confident that they would have if they went back for a seventh year.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that's about what we got at nine and ten because there weren't as many micro stories. We we'll have those big picture things. Let's go to the series as a whole. Like, what, give me your thoughts on the entire thing. Now I've seen all ten parts, and give me the grade.
2: Uh, I think uh, I mean grading with the curve.
1: This thing's an A plus because it came
2: at the perfect time when people needed it. It was the perfect conversation. I haven't, again, I love Twitter when my when sports are happening, and this was like a live sporting event on Twitter every single time it's aired with the commentary, the the gifs, the memes, the people bringing in other side stories that aren't in the documentary. So for the time that it came out an A+, because really America needed this, sports fans needed this. I think objectively, I'd probably give this thing an A- because I think it's impossible to ignore that MJ's uh, friends and producers had major say, Pretty MJ himself, had major say as to what went into this 10-part series. So I think while it is through a bold, rose-tinted color, and that's totally okay, you do have to take something back from it being like, all right, do we get the full picture? Uh, do, do I wish I heard from some, some of his opponents more, something like that, or maybe some more maybe anti-throwing stories. I would have loved to hear more about his family and his kids. But maybe MJ didn't want that in there because that was not part of it at all. The idea of family, his own personal family, didn't exist for these 10 episodes, only in little snippets. So that's the only reason I demote it a little bit. And grading with the curve. It's an A+. But grading, objectively, if you watch this again in four years when we have some normality, it'll still be entertaining as hell. The highlight packages will still be looked at in editing suites as masterpieces. But I think from a story standpoint, there are some stuff missing that you can't overlook.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I think also the one thing I think that people have been talking about a little bit, not as much. I mean, the music choices they've employed throughout this thing were absolutely perfect. I remember back in episode three when they had a Dennis Robin montage the Beastie Boys in the background. That was fantastic. The music oh, choices yeah. throughout were stellar. Yeah, I mean it was the music choices in this thing were incredible. Um I mean I mean the main music
2: that people think with the Bulls, they think of that, that interview music, right? Serious by Alan Parsons. Yeah, the one the I the funny into- thing is, as I own folks, speaking for me personally, Mike, when I hear that song, I think I'm out of college basketball because we use that for every home game to introduce our team. But knowing that it did originate with the Bulls, they had that in the first episode, it got everyone galvanized. But there are so many highlight packages where they just let the beat of the music, the sound of the game tell the story. And That is what a great editor and director does. You don't need a voiceover for every moment. You don't need a narrator for every little second of a story. Let the basketball tell the story. It's like a great play-by-play announcer. Mike, when something major is happening on the field, like a massive home run. They call it. It goes over the fence. It's best when the play-by-play guys just let it it breathe. Let the audience cheer. Let the ambiance take over for a second. That people soak in the moment because they're not going to remember anything that you say after that big shot. That's what the music in this documentary was like. It was those quiet moments while the music is blaring and the highlights are going. You don't need words to show what's happening on the court. It was just MJ working his magic, or it was the toughness and the, the grit against the Pacers and the battling that they had to do. It was those musical pieces that made this so good. It was, that it was those empty air moments that I'm going to go back and look on YouTube the most because. That that sequence against the Celtics, when MJ is averaging nearly 50 points per game, even though he loses, that was the highlight package for me with the music. Where I was like, "This is a work of genius, like pure master class." The music in this documentary and what they chose to highlight the culture which MJ helped shape. Again, chef kiss to the editors for this and, and for all the audio mixers for making that work.
1: Yeah, I agree. Masterful job there. Let's go to some some more, like, wrapping up stuff so this thing. Let's go to, let's get some MVPs after this thing. Michael does not count because Michael obviously won this whole documentary. Who else really stood out for you?
2: Uh, Jason Hare, the director, won. He put this together. He made 10 hours of entertainment entertaining. It's really hard to make 10 hours of anything all this good, right? Yeah. He's got to be an MVP. Even if he's not in front of the camera, his interview style of showing Michael Jordan, the interviews on the iPad and letting Michael Jordan react and getting those takes, incredible choice by me. Uh So, I mean, he's, he's a major MVP for me. Um, running down the list, I had a quick list of MVPs, Mike. I'll let you go. I'm sorry. I'm hogging the spotlight. But I think competition is an MVP because whenever you were done with an episode, you want to run through a brick wall and compete in something. Addicted to competition, I think we all were while watching The Last Dance. Uh, Phil Jackson, MVP for handling all the personalities. Steve Kerr, MVP for just being Steve Kerr. Uh, I think you gotta, one of the major winners are cigars and smoking. I'll, I mean, how many cigars were there in The Last Dance, Mike? You, you can't even count how many cigars there were. Those were MVPs for, for setting the mood. He had the shrug, Michael Jordan, he had the shrug of him in the postseason, plus the shrug of his bodyguard when he beat him in quarter talk. And Nike was a massive winner MVP of this series because of the amount of branding that they got and their little story with Adidas beating Adidas out that said couldn't make a shoe. Grudges were the major MVP. Revenge? I mean, Michael Jordan had a list. He's like Chris Jericho on WWE in his last game. and just put him on the list. Grudges were a major MVP of the series. And then I can't go without mentioning Carmen Electra. I mean, <laughs> she's a massive MVP. She's aimed like fine wine. When she first appeared on screen, literally all of Twitter in America was taken aback going, oh my God, Carmen Electra still got it. Okay. So, so those were some of my MVPs for the series. But the major ones would be the director Jason Hare, was absolutely incredible. And Phil Jackson is, is the one voiced within the Last Dance and part series that I think is the other major MVP besides Michael Jordan, because somehow this guy, Michael Jackson was able to corral all these personalities across two different groups and keep everything within the locker room and just focus on the court. Incredible stuff.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's all all those a great choice. I also got to throw in Dennis Rodman because Dennis Rodman is just so uniquely him and they did a good job capturing him and his essence in these episodes. I mean, episode three was sort of his spotlight, but he does pop up throughout doing all sorts of crazy things. I also want to give a shout-out to, like, MJ's mom was great. She was fantastic as well. And I I guess earlier, Sam Smith, when he popped on the screen, he did add some very good stuff to the story.
2: No, he did a really good job. And I think in your talk with him, he was surprised with how much he was in it. But in those first six episodes, he was in it quite a bit because he was a major focal point. And the, the way that this documentary series Michael Jordan's first choice of retirement was that he was tired of the media, tired of being the center of attention. They kind of put Sam Smith at the focal point of that, at him at the center of the microscope, as what started the spider web crap of the pacing of Michael Jordan with the media. Uh, so, again, he had a lot of things to say and he handled himself very well on camera.
1: All right, let's go to the other direction. Let's go to the LVPs. Who do you think came out as looking worse?
2: Oh, there, there are a lot. Oh, I mean, we got Jerry Krause, right? He was the the butt of every single joke, right? And the thing is, while while he could be a least valuable player because he was kind of an asshole, the thing is, he was very good at his job. You can't deny that. So you can separate the two, going listen. He got the things together for NJ to be successful, and while he may have been part of the reason that they broke up, he wasn't the main reason because I think Jerry Weindruck comes off really bad about this too. I think he kind of Tried to screw himself away from the reason that they broke up, saying, oh, he offered Hill Jackson one last chance at the end of the year to sign on again to get seven championships. I think that was just kind of throwing a safety net, hoping that people would allow him to fall into it. But I think he also comes off as the least valuable player. Uh, Those are probably my top two. Um, Other ones I'll just mention quickly. I think Isaiah Thomas, uh, while he had some good sound bites, I think he came off as a real jerk in this documentary, uh, just with the kind of arrogance and the thing he had, his explanation about them leaving the court, uh, I I didn't buy that at all. So I didn't think he came off well. Um, Rest and load management was also a least valuable player in this franchise because Michael Jordan just doesn't believe in it. And you saw him compete of every single second of every single game. Uh, So load management and rest, whether it be on or off the court, just not a thing at all. And also, let's be real, the fasting sense, of the early mid nineties was also a least viable player because those are the baggiest pants <laughs> I've ever seen in my life, and the thickest ties I've ever seen in my life and Michael Jordan's custom sunglasses at the nineteen ninety eight championship celebration were unique, and they looked like a science fiction movie, so last MacFking was the least viable player in this series as well.
1: Yeah, all good choices. I do have one, and I do think this is going to be a bold one but we did talk about this last week. I don't think Scottie Pippen came off very well in this thing between... He was also on my list. I didn't say him because I knew you were gonna. Yeah, Scottie Pippen did not come off well in this between holding out for the injuries. They want to mess up his summer. We got the 94, him not putting himself on the floor situation again. We got that disaster right on him saying all these years later, I would still do it like... This stuff does not come off well for Scotty. I mean, episode two, we get a little bit of the backstory. We get that why he signed the contract and why he said, you know what, I wanted to have, like, financial security for my family. And then he made a bad decision. He resented the ownership for it, and his resolution did not make him look good. He did not come off very well. And I got to say, of all the main players there, Scotty Scott takes a huge hit.
2: Yeah, he did. I, I, the, the biggest thing with Scott is when he didn't go into the game for that final shot and Phil didn't draw it up for him. Um, that, as a competitor, to not want to be on the floor for the final play of the game, even if you're getting the ball or not, is so incredibly selfish. Like, unbelievable. And I think they showed the impact that that had with teammates crying in the locker room and the distrust that he had to rebuild and MJ calling Phil Jackson while he was playing baseball saying, guys who is never going to live this down. But that moment, I was like, as a competitor, you dream of being in that final five on the court. I, When I'm playing pickup and there's six people playing on a team, I want to make sure I'm one of the last five and I'm not that one dude sitting, at the, sitting on the bench at the end of the game. That's playing pickup. And he voluntarily took himself out because he wasn't going to get that last shot, even though, I mean, the shot that eventually went in, it was just blew my mind. That that made me really, that, that took Skytip down quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and the thing of Bozzi about that sequence, as my friend Phil Lombaro said last week, Tony Kukos was like 5-for-5 five five or 6-for-6 six six on that shot in the regular season. Phil Jackson, who's won three championships, says, you know what? I want Kukos to get the ball here. You're going to sit there and tell Phil he's wrong when he's won three rings? Yeah,
2: it's, again, it's just selfish. And I think that was because Kai Kipin saw himself in the spotlight because MJ was gone, so he felt like he he deserved that final shot which maybe you, maybe you did, maybe you did deserve it. But just because you deserve something doesn't mean it's always the right choice at that moment in time. It's that said, those two things don't always equate themselves. So, And I think, to be fair, in episode 10, with In Balance through the back, I think they kind of they tried to rebuild his image, if you will, uh, with the, the grit that he had to show to get that sixth championship, which was a very impressive thing to do. But it wasn't enough to build up for more of the personal choices that he made that were highlighted throughout the series.
1: Also, for one more, I forgot for the MVP section. Tony Kukoc also gets ve- major points for how he handled this whole situation because he was all Jordan and Scott were against him initially. He came in from Europe, did a good job selling his role, made some big shots, he was a very good teammate. So, big props to Kukoc in the series. He was a good teammate. I mean, and I think it was good offensively from the podcast that I've listened to about the series
2: and from the stories I've read. He may have been the worst defensive player on the Bulls. So it may have limited what he could have done on the court, but the way he came off, he was very self-deprecating during the series. He was very open about everything. So in terms of his personality and him now, definitely a major uh, winner uh, among all the players who were interviewed.
1: Yeah, he was a big winner. I also want to say, I do think this is an interesting point we're going to look at here, because obviously you had, this is the big comparison to be amazing is probably this and OJ May in America, the other big epic that, ESPN's Thirty Thirty series has had that's just, that show that film won an Oscar from Ezra Edelman with that great series there. Do you think that this thing's gonna end up getting some sort of award play next year? Um, I do think it's gonna end up getting some award
2: play. I don't know if it's as critically acclaimed as *O.J. Made in America* was, uh, because that tackles more uh, heady issues, if you will, like like crime and stuff like that. That was, I think, getting more in the site face of not just sports fans. But I do think this has a chance because also who knows what the awards are going to look like at this year with, I mean, movie theaters aren't opening. There's going to be limited things shown because productions haven't been finished on major projects. So Mike, I think that the fact that this is finished, they rushed to finish it. It still came out really well. And other major television productions might not be able to finish their seasons or get off the ground due to the coronavirus. I think this has a very good shot to be awarded come award season, whatever that is.
1: And I said before, I think this thing might be a slam dunk for music in some category somewhere, because the music was fantastic in this thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: any sort of audio mixing or stuff like that, absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, and this raises my last point, because I know you're going to stick around in May. We're going to do some long way teasing of the Netflix pop culture like DVDQ rearranging. That's coming in just in May. but there has also been a movement going around Twitter today. We're recording on Monday, the day after The Last Dance came out, of, like, if you were to get a Last Dance-style series on somebody else, whether it's a team, an athlete, like who would you want it to be on? I'm going to post a question to you, John Stanko. Who would you want a 10-hour deep dive into Last Dance-style team player? All what's right, your this, pick? This is tough
2: because I, I think there are some good options. There are some obvious options. So I'll run through the three, I think, three, four very obvious ones. And I'll run through them really fast. I think LeBron James, when he's all said and done, I think he'd be a great feature for and it's not gonna happen now, but in 15 years when he's retired, I think this will be great. But he will do it also voluntarily because he he needs to have you with the media, he knows the attention he'll get. So that'll be good. I think Brady and Belichick, they're run with the Patriots, the two different dynasties they have. I think that has to be part. Of it. That has people want to know the backstory of the Patriots when that's all said and done. I think Muhammad Ali incredibly controversial and interesting figure in culture and in sports, He'd be fantastic. Tiger Woods, I think the fact that he won the Masters, you have a place to end the story, even if he wins again. But him re-winning the Masters is how you end episode 10 of that documentary series. Those are the four obvious ones, Mike. Here are other ones I think would be interesting. Serena Williams, fascinated. she's the most dominant player in that sport ever. Arguably, the most dominant player in that sport compared to any other person in any other sport, right? Would love one on her. Michael Phelps dominated the 2008 Olympics with his gold medal. Would love a behind-the-scenes of his training and what people thought of him, the people who were competing against him, what that was like, the hype of the Olympics. America was all rooting for him, shooting into it like with appointment TV every time he raced. Right? That was that would be fascinating. I think me personally. The 2004 and 2013 Boston Red Sox World Series Championships would be great. 2004 uh, for breaking the streak. And 2013 for after the Boston Marathon, I think you can tell great stories about that. But I don't know if you can make them 10 parts, especially the 2013 version. But I think they'd be interesting topics. And for me, a risky one, which I don't know if any people would watch, but I think would get some attention, would be the Penn State-Michigan State sexual assault scandal with uh, Jerry Sandusky and Larry Nassar that happened in quick succession within a couple of years, and the amount of cover-up that had to go into that and the effect on that, what was happening before, how it all came to light, and now what happened after to kind of amend for the mistakes and what's been made to prevent something like that from happening again. I think that would be a fascinating one that's really tough to sell to a network because it's a really heavy, heavy topic, but I think that would be fascinating.
1: I think that one would be more in vein of like the OJ made in America kind of deal where you're trying to go for like prestige and a massive st- storytelling appeal. I think that's exactly. where that goes. I think that one would be more like an Oscar bait kind of deal where you're trying to like make a dramatic like retelling of this and send a message with that. I think that would be the number one. Tiger Woods, I agree with you. I love that idea because the story, I mean, you have so like the rise, the relationship with his father, the fall, the infidelity, like. It all relates, and then it comes back to him at the back, missing time at the back, coming back and winning in 19. I think Tiger, I think, is the number one on the leaderboard there. I think that he has to be it. And one I'm going to throw out as a sleeper candidate, this this might kind of, actually sort of like the history of one team, but this has not really been done since they've won. The Chicago Cub fan base, I mean, like coming, like all of their misfortunes over the years to them winning in 16, seeing how some of the pieces of that team came together, I think that would be fun.
2: That would be fun. And then again, again, I'm focusing on Chicago for two straight 10 part documentary series. So they would absolutely love the attention. And you know that that city would eat that up and gobble it up. So that also is a good thing. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. Tiger Woods is the one for me that's next on the docket. Uh, whenever someone wants to plan that and make that, I will tune in for every second because he's telling the greatest of all time at, at his sport, at least in my opinion, the greatest of all time, with for golf, like Michael Jordan was for basketball.
1: Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, people have said Derek Jeter. I don't think there's really like one moment for Jeter you can say, oh, this is where the story's going to be centered on because Jeter seems like if we do a two-hour on him, it's hard. I don't think there's 10 hours of Derek Jeter you can really dive into. There's not really many like peaks and valleys in his career you're going into.
2: No, and he was never the best player in baseball. He was never, in my opinion, the best shortstop uh, in, in baseball when he was playing. There were people that were better than him. He's a great champion. He's a great Yankee. I don't think he is a great sports icon to make a ten-part documentary series of.
1: Yeah, those. It's for me, it's Tiger, and I think you're right. The second one has to be Belichick and Brady because you have the two, the two dynasties on one end. You have the middle. You have enough story elements there. You could basically do a whole rise and fall of the Patriots. That's something I could easily see happening too.
2: Also, imagine the people that would hate watch that Patriot one, hoping for just any sort of controversy or new story about the spying and the cheating and they would poke holes in anything and they'd have a whole episode to the flame gate which would get me riled up. Uh I mean people would hate watch that one.
1: Yeah. Imagine for like episode one when they get John Gruden on talking about how they got robbed in the Tuck rule.
2: I listen, I you gotta finesse your way to a win whichever way possible and Brady Belgian did that. The Tuck rule, I listen. to fine.
1: Yeah. That was a sign of the times, John. Thanks for thanks for doing this part. Let's stick around. We'll do we'll do some Netflix DVDing.
2: Yeah, let me go grab a glass of water. You press the pause button, then we'll be right back. How about that?
1: That sounds good. Let's press the pause button. We'll be right back right after this. All right, back here on the podcast talking some pop culture with John Stanko. The double dose of John Stanko. The audience is absolutely thrilled this week, John.
2: Uh, Listen, Mike, I am thrilled to be here with you. And today we're talking movies, which you know I'm always a fan of. So very excited.
1: Yeah, we just talked about the end of The Last dance. We had our thoughts there. Now we're going into your wheelhouse, which is the movies. And you're going to help me with some interesting stuff here because today we're doing something that's been long teased. I mentioned the Netflix DVD queue on this podcast many times both you and our pop culture correspondent, Santa Rosa, and I've said, today, you're going to help me rearrange it to get the optimal viewing experience out of the 33 or so movies I have on there.
2: It's true, and what you're doing to me, Mike, is you're putting me on the spot because I don't know any of the movies on your list. So, this is a surprise for me, and you're catching me off guard, but I like it.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun. We'll do that in just a minute. Before we go there, though, I want to touch base with you because the Westworld season finale aired a couple of weeks ago. I i've not gotten your thoughts on it on the air so what was your takeaway from the end of the season
2: i'm gonna be honest mike the second half of season three was not nearly as strong as the first half um while the show looked visually stunning throughout the entire eight episode run i think episodes five through eight uh were particularly not very good especially the season finale uh I was incredibly disappointed. Um, I know you went in deep into it with your own podcast, but there were a ton of plot holes and kind of stupid story decisions that happened that I wasn't a fan of. Um, I think they got too complicated for their own good. Um, I think they kind of, they kind of, even the the most diehard fans left confused, and that's really hard to do on a show like Westworld. So when you have the Reddit community of book puddling for answers, then you're in trouble. So I wasn't a huge fan at the end of season three. Uh, was disappointed on mine after the season finale.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna throw, take a stab in the dark there and say that your big thing you're, that you were not thrilled was was the basically the the turn that Dolores' plan takes, where she basically changed her motivation in the last second.
2: Yeah, that that was definitely something I didn't think they built up to enough. I don't think they built up to Maeve pushing side to agree with Dolores enough. Uh, I don't know why the rock had to be there in person at all for the final climactic episode when he could have been a hologram and nobody would have known. Uh, I don't get the point of Bernard and stubbed the whole entire season. Their last three episodes, they literally did almost nothing except share a few lines and, and get William out of right the Psych the sideboard. But then the, the biggest thing that really kind of made me angry was that the post-credit scene is killing off William, right? Yep. And one of the biggest show, one of the biggest questions for the entire show was whether or not William was human or not. We were asking that question: Is he human? Is he human? And then you reveal it at the end in a post credit scene, like after their season's technically over. That's not payoff. That's kind of cheaping out on your audience. I was really not a big fan of that season either.
1: Yeah, I feel that like the post credit things come very popular with the Marvel movies. So that when they first day with Iron Man one, which is in the Netflix queue, and like today but i feel like everybody now says oh i have to do a post credit scene and i feel like that does kind of do lazy storytelling there to a, to a degree
2: yeah i mean but the thing is with marvel is that they're never answering a question that like you were burning to ask like it was always revealing the next step if you will this one they revealed the next step with char and where she's working at delos which she can just get a job there again great fantastic but they literally answered one of the biggest burning questions for two straight seasons in a span of thirty seconds, so I was I was really bummed by that, and I yeah I, I wasn't very happy with it. I was very disappointed, um, and I'll say that season four, as of right now, is not going to be appointment viewing for me. I'll watch the episodes, but as of right now, it's not going to be Sunday night, Monday morning viewing.
1: So you so it's back to your you know oh Tuesday third Wednesday afternoon if I'm at work and I have nothing going on that's going to be when Where's pops up for you.
2: Yeah, basically, it's it's gonna be when I'm done with work. I need something to work out to. I'll throw it on the TV or whatever while i eating dinner. But I'm not gonna stay up late on a on a Sunday night and watch it. There are better shows now on Sunday night that that are that are more appealing than than Westworld. So, so that's what I'm gonna do. I'm sorry. I like the show. I really like the first half of the season, but then it just got too convoluted and took too many turns for its own good.
1: Yeah, so we'll put the Westworld to the back burner. Now we'll have some fun. The activity today is my Netflix DVD queue. Counting the ones to sit in my house since January, which I'm going to get to like this like this week after I finish up this big project you know I'm working on. So once this is mm-hmm. done, I'm yep. going to watch that. I'm going to send it back. But I do have 33 more movies on the queue. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read them off. You are going to react to it. and We're sort of going to reorder the queue so that like I have a more effective order to view these movies in. And when we're done... You were gonna have a couple of suggestions. You're gonna, you can just insert wherever you want in the list to help make enhance my viewing experience and broaden my horizons a little bit. Because you will see once it gets a certain point here, you'll see where your influence starts to pop up on the list.
2: Uh yeah, no, I'm excited again. 33 movies. I don't know any of them. So, all right, Mike, let's do this. What, what do you got on your list? I'm curious.
1: All right. So, in, in case you are curious, the one that is sitting at home right now and the Netflix DVD plan. Basically, what I have is. I get one DVD at a time. I watch it, I can keep it as long as I want, and then I send it back. The movie that is sitting at home right now is Iron Man 1. Okay. You have not seen the original Iron. I said, this is a rewatch, Iron Man 1. Okay, so rewatching Iron Man 1. Gotcha.
2: Iron I, Man 1 is good. It's, it's the one that started it all off, and it's objectively a very good movie. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the first Iron Man.
1: Yeah, so to give you a frame of reference here, I think this is the point of the... Of the of the uh, situation here, where I basically, I think this is right before Avengers Endgame came out. I basically put a bunch of them in to try and rewatch some of them. Thor came around so Thor is not on the list. But the next one up on the queue is Incredible Hulk.
2: The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. Yes. Oh, okay. So here's the thing: I like that movie a lot more than both. A lot of people uh, banished it from the Marvel movie universe, if you will. Um, but I am actually a bigger fan than most of that movie.
1: Yeah, so we will leave it number one where it is right now. We will see if it ch- your mind changes. Next up, Iron Man Two.
2: Iron Man Two was hot garbage, so that's going to be <laughs> down at the bottom.
1: <laughs> yeah, that one is very that's, polarizing. Uh, I else to add. It's not good. Yeah, very polarizing. Very clunky way to introduce Black Widow into the uh, into the Cinematic Universe. I not, sh- I can see the reason why you were going to drop this one.
2: And so the movie's about the suit. It's not about the character. It, it was weird to me when I saw it, and I, I haven't gone back to visit because it's left no big impact. Otherwise, otherwise, it's like I didn't like it.
1: Yep, so right now we are sticking with the original order here. We have Incredible Hulk 1, Captain Iron Man 2 It 2. Next up, the last of the Phase 1 movies, Captain America, the first Avenger.
2: All right. Well, here's the thing. I didn't like the first Captain America very much. wasn't a big fan. Uh, was a little too hokey for me. I didn't uh, love Red Skull. Um, so that I, that one's going to be low on the list, than probably people would like to think. wasn't a big fan.
1: Okay. This is now. I have one coming in here. I think they'll be interesting for you because you remember I've said that about like a year and a half behind, usually on my on my movie cues. Yeah, you are. A Quiet Place is next up.
2: Oh, oh! Well, you got to see the Quiet Place before the sequel comes out later this year, whenever that is. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Quiet Place, and that was one of my favorite movies the year it
1: came out. I believe it was 2018. Um, big, big fan. Does that go to number one right now? Does that pass Incredible Hulk?
2: Uh yeah. I'm list- I'm just listing them right now in the order you have them. But as of right now, yes, yeah, A Quiet Place would. For sure, be number one on the list, and it's not even close at the moment.
1: Okay, so we'll keep going down. We'll discuss it all at the end. I'll let you list it out for me.
2: Well, here we go. I'll I'll, I'll start rescheduling at but yeah, You keep going down your list.
1: Number five on the list right now: Ready Player One. Okay,
2: Ready Player One. Steven Spielberg, special effects bonanza, ton of cult, ton of pop culture references. So I think you're gonna like this one quite a bit. um it's polarizing amongst the people who I talked about it with, whether it was a great movie or a great homage. So I'll be curious to get your opinion once you see it.
1: Yeah, this is one where I basically saw the trailer in the theaters, and I didn't say, this is one that's interesting, but I don't want to spend the $13 for a movie ticket. So this is one I just throw on the Netflix queue. I tend to do that where it's like, I'm okay seeing it later, but I don't want to spend the money on it to go get the movie ticket. Next up, number six, Deadpool 2. Deadpool two, uh, not as good
2: as the first Deadpool, but still incredibly enjoyable and debaucherous. Um, Josh, Josh Brolin, I believe this year was, I believe this came out the same year as Infinity War, so he had Thanos, and he was also in Deadpool two, two of the biggest superhero grossing movies of that year. So I like Deadpool two quite a bit, quite a, quite a bit.
1: Yeah, so that one I'm intrigued by because, again, I saw the first one. I loved the first one. That one, I just did not have time to get to theaters for that one, so it made the queue. Next up on the list, this is these next two go hand in hand. It's actually a rewatch of the Ken Burns, Jackie Robinson documentary. Part one and part two are separate discs.
2: Okay, I have not seen this movie. So if it's Ken Burns is probably very good, um, but I have not seen this. I know Ken Burns made some waves with his uh, commentary on The Last Dance and his thoughts of it as a documentary feature. But if it's Ken Burns and it's got Jackie Robinson's story, it's got to be pretty decent.
1: Yeah, I remember watching it on PBS when it came out, and I was enthralled by it, and I sort of threw it on the end of the Netflix queue when I saw the DVD was there, and it got up to number seven and eight. That's where it is sitting right now in the list. So we'll see where it ends up at the end of the list. But next up, another sports entry, Invincible. In Invincible, the the Mark Wahlberg? Uh the one like, the one about the guy who played for the Eagles.
2: Yeah, Mark yeah. Wahlberg. Yep. Vince uh, Papali? Yep. Oh, I love that movie where I Oh, I don't know when that came out. That came out a while ago. Have you
1: seen it before? I have not seen it before.
2: Oh, okay. Interesting. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh there's only a few scenes that I remember from it for. Well, okay, Invincible. I thought that's the first time I've heard of that movie in a long time.
1: Yeah, I remember. I actually saw a part of it on TV the other day. I was flipping channels; it was on. I was like, you know what? It's on the queue. I have to save it.
2: I want to make sure it's Vince Papali. I believe that's his name. That's correct. Uh, Is correct? Okay. I didn't remember that. Um, yeah, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Two thousand six. Like I saw this as like a freshman in high school. My God.
1: Okay. That's a- All right. Yeah, at that point, I was a senior in high school in two thousand six.
2: Well, it was this is a long time ago, but it wasn't bad if I recall. It Wasn't bad.
1: Yeah, and also you are feel you are free to ask me any questions or stop if you have any major gripes about anything on this list. So or anything you have any hot. As of on. right
2: now, I have no major gripes.
1: I know you're a huge Marvel fan, so I'm not going to begrudge you for watching any Marvel movie. Yeah. So
2: I'm not going to begrudge you for that. We haven't gotten to any any major discourse.
1: Okay. Uh, number ten, Christopher Robin.
2: Oh, this the new one that came out last year. Yes, this movie is awesome. It is so good, I cried. Wow, I cry. I'm telling you right now, this is getting moved to number two.
1: This wow, is getting moved to
2: behind a crying place. I love this movie. Oh, this this is a kids movie that's made for adults.
1: Yeah, incredible. i incredible. I this movie was so good. Yeah, I remember when the trailer came out, I was obviously, like, big, big invested in it because I think Ewan McGregor is in it, and I think he plays, uh, I think he plays grown-up Christopher Robin, and we get the, I think Haley Atwell is in it, too, and, like, the, those two alone I'm big fans of, so it drew my attention. Then once I saw, like, the trailer, I was like, oh, it's got a little heart. I do enjoy that.
2: Yeah, this movie's going to make you cry. It made me cry. I brought it to at least once, if not maybe twice, but it, it's excellent. It is excellent, excellent, excellent.
1: Awesome stuff. I'm glad to hear. I have a good choice on there. Number 11, one we've discussed before and one you've said is a bad movie. So I'm curious to see where you think it should go on here. Bohemian Rhapsody.
2: This movie is a piece of
1: shit. (laughs) Oh my God. Why? I
2: I mean, I guess you have to see it because it was such a big touchstone for the culture. But this movie is, is hot garbage. Um, it's hot garbage. It's it's one of the most overblown movies of the past five years that I can remember. And yeah, this is not a good movie. It is not a good movie. If it was not Queen, this movie would have gotten panned across the universe. I hope you have Rocket Man on the queue to make up for Bohemian Rhapsody.
1: It, it, spoiler alert: It is coming. Excellent. Okay. Good. And the reason why Bohemian Rhapsody is here is because of my love for Rami Malek.
2: Rami Malek is a fine actor, but guess what? Sometimes actors have really bad movies. And Rami Malek in this movie is good. I don't think he's great. I think he's more doing, and this is going to sound so hacky, but it sounds like he's doing more of an impersonation at times than acting. Um, that That's my biggest gripe with, this, with his performance. He's not the worst part of the movie by
1: any means. By any means, he's not the worst, but this is not a good movie. So, so what is the worst part of the movie, you think?
2: Uh, the pacing of the movie is just not very good. Uh, they rewrite way too much history of it. The amount of convenience that happens in this movie is insane. And you could tell that it went through a series of different directors because it's, there's no, again, there's no coherent pace into the way it's edited, into the way the actors are portraying the roles. There's just there's different visions of the way this movie was meant to be. And it doesn't come together in the end.
1: Alright, sounds interesting. We're back to Marvel number 12, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I early enjoyed Ant-Man and the Wasp.
2: I consider Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp two of the better Marvel movies, and people get angry at me for it. but as pure movies themselves as not part of the greater cinematic universe of Marvel. These are two of the better movies for me.
1: Yeah, like, how do you feel compared to the first? I remember walking into Ant-Man and the Wasp and... I enjoyed it. I think the problem that it had was that its placement right after Infinity War sort of really hurt the momentum of that movie.
2: Well, that's the thing. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna win over crowd after Infinity War. But if I'm looking at my rankings now, let me let me pull up my word, Doc. Let me let me stall here. Keep on talking. The original Ant Man, I gave a plus, I believe, which is pretty good. Now, if we find the Wasp, I gave the Wasp a B. So I gave it slightly less of a grade, but still a very durable and enjoyable movie.
1: Yeah. I, 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 enjoyed it. I remember I was laughing. I do think they gave Michael Payne a little bit too much, like a uh, wiggle room in this movie. I th- I thought they got away from what he did best in the first one, which was the rapid like montage storytelling. They got away from that with him, but I think the rest of the movie stood, stood up fine. It was just the problem was it came after a Titan and then you're sort of left underwhelmed by that when in comparison to infinity war. Yeah. It's,
2: it, it it's different from the rest of the marvel movies cuz it's a lot more self contained um so the post credit scene in ant-man and the wasp is i think one of the best uh in in on all the on all the Baldwin movies that uh, that post credit scene got me and it was good
1: it was really good and we got another heavy hitter coming up at number 13 a star is born oh oh michael
2: this is number 1
1: really have
2: you seen it i have not that's why it's on the list Mike, I cried the first time I saw this movie. You're already going to get to know me right now. I cried five times the first time I saw it. Five times. Uh, I can name all the sequences where I cried. There was happy tears. There was sad tears. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I mean that. Objectively, I mean that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I know this soundtrack by heart. I love, 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 love this movie. I don't care if it was like, it was, if it was like, cool to like it or if you were on the train for liking it. I genuinely think this is a great, well-made, well-acted movie, and I loved it. Every single minute of it.
1: That's an awesome endorsement. I, I know that, like, I will, I remember when I first heard that, that they, they had Lady Gaga acting, like, I'm not sure about this, and then I've heard really great things. Oh, Mike, you, you should cry. That's, I'm telling you,
2: if you have emotions, you will cry. But I love this movie It was excellent I was a bubble I was a, a puddle of tears when the first time I saw it in the theater
1: That's awesome stuff Good to know number, number 14 One I feel like Is to go the opposite End of the spectrum For you That is Fantastic Beasts The Crimes of Grindelwald This movie is another Piece of garbage
2: Oh, This is just taking A 180 degree turn Fantastic Beasts And this is the second one Right? Yes uh, This one with Johnny Depp This movie. Stunk, stunk, stunk as well. Oh my God, this might... This this is movie's worse than Bohemian Rhapsody. And I mean that. Um, really did not enjoy the movie.
1: Yeah, I, I I heard it got pan, which is why I didn't go see it in theaters. I saw the first one in the theaters, the first one I enjoyed, and then I, I get the sense that they were trying to like make a new Harry Potter franchise of this, and this did not land.
2: No, you should make a main character that people actually like, um, because, no offense, uh, but nobody really, nobody likes the main character. He's just, he's garbage. I'm forgetting his name. Youth Commander. Sorry, I forgot his name. That's how boring and bland
1: he is. Yeah, played by um, Eddie
2: Redmayne. Yeah, a good actor, but this movie, this thinks. Um, Yeah, not even the charisma of a two ball as Albert Dumbledore can say in this movie.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, I'm guessing, that's going to be far down the bottom. I'm curious to see where that lands later, but next up, a, actually getting a DC movie for the first time in here. Aquaman.
2: I liked Aquaman. I was impressed with Aquaman. Aquaman is, uh, it was the first time DC was kind of self-aware of itself. Um, so I liked Aquaman very much. DC Momoa was literally the perfect casting for the character. Um, I liked Aquaman very much, more so than I thought.
1: Yeah, that's what I heard too, is that uh, people have a lot of expectations for it after Justice League and some of the other garbage that they put out, and then this came out, and they are like, people are like, oh, Aquaman can be fun. That's the thing. It's I, uh, Like, if you just look at it as a movie itself, there are definitely some
2: problems with it, whether it be the plot, the, the acting, the writing. The writing is bad at times, but just as an experience of you coming out of it, you're going to have a smile on your face because you're like, oh, I enjoyed my time. It wasn't perfect, but it did the job in it past of two hours. So Aquaman is, is one of the better DC movies, especially of recent years.
1: Yeah, and I think that's going to be interesting to see number 16. One, one more Marvel in the well here, Captain Marvel. Captain
2: Marvel. Captain Marvel, I really liked when I first saw it. Um, I have tried to revisit it, and I have not been able to finish it. Uh, because it's not as strong as the first time I remember seeing it. Um, I don't know what was with me in the theater the first time I saw it, but I really enjoyed it. But it's a tough rewatch for me.
1: Tough rewatch. Yeah, why do you think that is?
2: Ah. Uh, I don't know. It maybe it was like uh, just Brie Larson won me over the first time she saw, like the first time we're portraying the character, and it was enough, uh, and she was enough to, to carry the movie and to make it good. I gave it a really good grade upon first day coming out in theaters. But I also think it doesn't help that in the in the uh, like Infinity War in an End Game, she kind of just more of a bit character who comes in at big moments to save the day. Uh and doesn't play a major part, so she's kind of inconsequential if you will. And I definitely think that hurt it as well. I don't think they know what they're doing with the character yet. And I don't think that was as readily obvious the first time I watched the movie. I think they're confident in the movie they want to make, but I still don't think they know what they want from her in the future.
1: Yeah. I think the problem with that character specifically, is I feel like they sort of got blinded by what black Panther did. And so I said, Oh, we're going to make the women's version of black Panther. Didn't quite land that way.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, There's no way it made the cultural impact of Black Panther, though.
1: Not even remotely close to that. I think that's what they were trying for. I think that's the problem they had.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, agreed. And next up, we are staying in the Disney family here. And this is one of the live acts I have not seen yet. Live action Dumbo. Uh,
2: I have not seen this either because I had zero interest to see it. I didn't like Dumbo, the animation movie. I'm not a huge fan of Tim Burton. So I really had no desire to see this movie, and I, and I still haven't seen it. I know it's on Disney Plus. I know I should watch it one day, but it's, it's not high up there in my own queue.
1: Good, good to know. And one you asked about before, I'm, now we've hit it: Rocket Man.
2: Yeah, I love Rocket Man. Uh, Karen Anderson in this movie was awesome. He got the Golden Globe nomination. Um, this movie was really, really good. It's so much better than Bohemian Rhapsody, and in, in almost every single way, shape, and form. Maybe you don't know as many words to all of the songs, but I think you'll be surprised, even if you're not a huge Elton John fan. I like Rocking Man quite a bit, and I'll tell you, depending on what you have left on your queue, but I'm very bar- this is going to be a top of your list. Near it, near near, near the near top of your list.
1: Yeah, you see, we're starting to get to the point where your influence starts popping up on this list.
2: Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm I have a notepad up with all the all the movies that you've named on seeing them around as you're saying the title, so we'll get there eventually.
1: Yeah, we will. And number 19, the backstory behind this, I guarantee you've never heard of this, because this is something that was has been in the queue because it was a project in a film class for our master's degrees that I took that was originally on the list, but got switched out because people could not access it readily. It's called When We Were Kings, a documentary about Muhammad Ali.
2: When We Were Kings. Interesting. I don't think I've seen this. Uh, but if it's about Muhammad Ali, then it's going to be an interesting story uh, for sure. Now, let me let me see. Because uh, when we were... No, I have not seen this movie. So I do not know this movie. But it's Muhammad Ali, so it's going to be a good story. Yeah. I, mean... and it's, I see it's a fight uh, with him and George Foreman. Um the Rung the Rumble in the
1: Jungle. Interesting.
2: And it won an Oscar. So there we go. I will have to check this out.
1: Yeah, I did yeah, I had no idea this existed until the class got taken. Then it was supposed to be like we were gonna do a group viewing of it as a class, but since the since the thing was hybrid, he said, you know what, we'll cancel this one out. We'll swap in something else. And that's what basically happened to that. All
2: right. Well this one might be higher up than the Jackie Robinson just because I don't know. I don't know much about I don't know as much about Muhammad Ali as I do Jackie Robinson. But I'd be more curious to watch this movie than the Jackie Robinson doc.
1: I'm intrigued as well. I can't wait to figure that out. Number twenty, this is one we've discussed on the podcast. I never got around to seeing it last year because when it came out, it was like in the middle of like my busy season, right before I was like I was still helping out with the Rockland Boulders. I was helping out about to help out with my own athletics department. Uh, blinded by the light.
2: Uh, I have not seen this either. The Bruce Springsteen movie. It is on my HBO Now queue, so um, I have not seen it either. Um, curious. This is the third movie in in two years that centers around the music of a prominent artist. So this one's not a musical per se. I don't think as much as the other two, being Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody. But this one is literally on my HBO Now queue. If you have HBO Now or HBO Go, you could watch this right now.
1: Yeah, this, this is interesting because I remember we talked about this on the podcast last summer. It was like, I think it's very interesting that concept was original. I remember it just, the timing did not work out for me. That's the only reason why I didn't go see it in theaters.
2: Yeah, and it didn't do well in theaters. This movie bombed. Um, so it was not, not as beloved by, by the audience like, like the other two movies were.
1: Yeah, I think the fact it was not about the actual, not actually about Springsteen, but about a, like, like a teenager who got inspired by Springsteen. I don't think that helped the cause.
2: Yeah, it's again, it's an interesting concept. I think they're hoping more from it critically, and I don't think it, it no hooks grasped into it and kind of pulled it above uh, just the, the purgatory that it was in. I think that was the biggest thing. Kind of just, everyone was like, "This is decent. This is decent." Nobody pulled it up to the episode, like this is excellent standard.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And we're twenty-one now. We are on, on the second DC film on the list: Shazam. Uh,
2: I like Shazam. Quite a bit. Um, I liked Shazam because the ending actually surprised me. I didn't know the twist at the ending. Have you seen it? I have not. You've not, so I will not spoil. But the ending to Shazam got me a little bit, and I thought Mark Strong was really good as the bad guy, and I thought Zachary uh, Levi was actually good as Shazam too. So Shazam's gonna be gonna be high up there. Um, I enjoyed Shazam more than I did Aquaman. Then um, that's no detriment to Aquaman, but Shazam was a better movie.
1: Interesting, and not know that. But I also feel like with me, also, you're starting. To see, you, this is one of those where again, I saw the trailer. I'm like, this looks interesting. Do I want to spend thirteen dollars on it? No. Like, I will watch it eventually. That's sort of like the logic of a lot of this.
2: Yeah, this movie again. This movie kind of also just embraced the absurdity uh, of the story and of the character, but had a lot more. Uh, The levity and the comedy in it was more grounded in the story and not as much as one-liners, if
1: you will, like what Jason Momoa did in Aquaman.
2: So the the script itself lended to the comedy more than the charisma of the actor.
1: That makes sense. Good to know. Next up on the list, a movie that we have talked about, I think, on the year-end pop culture wrap-up podcast, one that you were not as big a fan of as Santa Rosa was. The Todd Phillips Joker movie.
2: Yeah, Joker, again, I, I thought it was good, and I didn't think it was great. I thought the performance was great. Um, but the thing is, this is going to be high up on the list because you should see it because everyone needs to form their own opinion about it. Um, this is not one where you can listen to anybody else. You need to see it for yourself because um, I've rewatched parts of it, uh, especially when it came to, like, award season and, Parts of the movie are really, really good, and they stuck out even more so the second time I watched them. Um, I still think there are problems with it as a movie as a whole, but it's going to be high up on the list because it deserves to be have your own critical eye on it.
1: Okay, that's going to be good. Now we're getting... I think these next three, they're going to be touch and go here, so this might be where you look at me and like, what are you... What's, you might be asking this in just a, about a minute here. You might be going... Respect, particularly with 25, you might be going. What the hell's going on out here? Uh, bl- listen, you have Bohemian
2: Rhapsody, Iron Man 2, and Fantastic piece 2. So if it's worse than that, then we're in trouble.
1: All right, next up, number 23, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh,
2: Won't You Be My Neighbor. This Is, a, is this the Tom Cruise one or the documentary? I think it's the doc. I just can't remember. The doc. I, so I've seen the doc. Um, and the doc is excellent. I cried in the documentary, and I knew nothing about Mr. Rogers beforehand. So be my neighbor, um, if I write this down. I remember this movie was not nominated for an Oscar, and people were balking at it, um, and, I re- and I watched it myself, and it was actually one of the last movies I watched in my old apartment, my old house, um, and it was excellent. So this is going to be high up there because it's an awesome, awesome story, and the amount of testimonials they get about Mr. Rogers I had no idea the cultural impact he had, and they really do shed a good light on it.
1: That's in, that's good to know. Number twenty-four: A Paul Rudd vehicle. The catcher was a spy.
2: Can you say that one more time? I don't remember what. what say one more time.
1: Uh, this, it was starring Paul Rudd. The catcher was a spy. Is a movie about the catcher, like Mo Berg, who ended up being a spy in his, in his later life.
2: Uh, I know nothing about this movie. <laughs> I I know literally nothing. I have never heard of it. The Catcher and the Spy.
1: The Catcher was a spy.
2: The Catcher was. See, I don't even know the title of the movie. So that's how much I don't know about this movie. Um, I, I don't know where to put this movie on your list, so this is going to get a question mark, because I literally don't know anything about it. This came out in 2018, and I still don't know anything about it. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, that doesn't bode very well.
1: Yeah, I don't think it did too well to Craig, if I remember correctly.
2: Uh, it is not of a good meta score it's not of a good IMDb score it's only 98 minutes so even if it's bad you'll be able to finish it
1: yeah so that that's that helps but um yeah I don't know anything about this movie nothing yeah all I know is Paul Rudd is the main character. it plays the main character
2: he is the main character that's the only thing I got and I recognize Tom Wilkinson as an actor Connie Nielsen as an actress Mark strong so it's got some got some names that you recognize but still reviews as I'm seeing now are not great
1: They are not great And this next one This might be the one That might be a contender For the bottom of the list here Justice League
2: Okay So here's the thing With Justice League It's not a good movie But you'll be entertained Um The ending of the movie Is Is Uh Is The biggest problem With it that I have Um But there's gonna be Movies that are lower Than Justice League Because for As many imperfections As it has There's still a sense of chaotic action enjoyment and entertainment you'll get from it so it's not a good movie by any means um but it's not awful 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 it's still disappointing but it's not terrible 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 all
1: right so we're through the first 25 if we get to the last eight what do you think about the range of movies are on this list so far i mean you
2: you have a wide range you have some pbs sports doc with the ken burns jackie robinson documentary you got some critical darlings like Azaras, on Christopher Robin, Will not You Be My Neighbor? You got some really shitty blockbusters like Iron Man, Two Bohemian Rhapsody, and Fantastic Beasts Two. Um, you've you've got a good. The one thing you're missing here, you're missing. Uh, you don't you don't like romance. You're not a big romance guy. No romantic comedies in your life. Um, that's and you know no horror movies. Absolutely no horror movies whatsoever. Uh, you can call a quiet place a horror movie. Yeah, I guess that's the only horror movie you have. Well, uh, keep that in those mind. Those are the only oh, sorry, sorry. Those go are the only two No, those yeah, those are the only two genres that you're really kind of missing out here on. You okay. got to throw some romantic comedies in your life, man. Well, keep... a is romantic, but let me tell you it's not a comedy.
1: Well, keep in mind, you also have a couple of picks you get to put in the queue at the end. So, that's that's something I can... do. I do. I made some notes about
2: some recent movies that I've seen or movies that I think would be good for your list. So, I'm keeping that in mind.
1: Yeah, so I forgot I actually do have thirty-four in the queue, there is one more on the list that I have that I got thrown on recently. So I will keep going here though. Okay. This is the parts of the queue where I feel like you're gonna be very excited about some of these. Number twenty six, one of your all time favorites, John Wick.
2: Oh, this oh my god, it's number one. It's <laughs> John Wick, two and three better be on your list.
1: They are the next two.
2: Good, Uh, good. We're going John Wick, John Wick 2, and John Wick 3. Excellent, thank you. You can count your next three weekends on me. Those are one, two, three. My favorite action franchise of the past, I don't know when. I own all these movies. I know all the lines, especially to the first two movies. John Wick is awesome. It is awesome, awesome, awesome for anyone who loves action. These are one, two, three on the list. You gotta see John Wick.
1: Got it. Awesome stuff because, like I said, like you started talking about it in like when you say this June, you're like, okay, I got. I think that's about when I put John Wick on the queue. I'm like, okay, I have to see these because Stanko loves them.
2: It's, I'm. You know what? I'm probably gonna fall asleep to it now because it's just so. I rewatched the Baba Yaga speech at least once a week. At least I don't even know. You probably don't even know what that is, but you will know once it happens. And it's, these movies are awesome. If you love action movies, these movies are the cream of the crop. Especially of recent times,
1: yeah. Good to know that's going to be one, two, and three. Number twenty-nine, Apollo Eleven.
2: Apollo- oh, this is a really
1: great. Is it? Yeah, this is the
2: doc, right? Yeah, this is a really good documentary. It is it insane? The, ar- the archival footage and the story they tell with the archival footage. There's no interviews. This is just strictly archival footage that they get for this movie, and it is awesome. This is a better made documentary than Won't You Be My Neighbor because of what the director and everyone involved had to do to compile all this footage and to put it together to make a coherent movie. And this was not nominated for an Oscar, and it would have won an Oscar this year, in my opinion. It should have, from all the documentaries that I saw. Apollo 11 is awesome. It's a crowning achievement to documentary filmmaking
1: yeah as you can see
2: honestly honestly this movie made me not want to do a voiceover for my own personal documentary for grad school for my grad school thesis which you know about this movie made me be like nope i don't want any voiceover i'll throw in interviews but i'm not going to have anything like cutting between scenes i want that natural flow and this movie really convinced me of
1: that it's good to know i mean like i as you know like i'm working on one it's going to be out by the time this podcast comes out but like I chose to have the narrator just because like, my story, the way it was, sort of needed that, that connected tissue sort of bridge, because I'm covering a wide period of history there, so it's kind of hard to just do it on just interviews.
2: No, I got the you. Yours is a lot more wide breadth than mine. Mine's a very community-centered kind of story. Um, but yeah, Apollo 11, you will appreciate the effort that went into making this, for uh, sure.
1: All right, final five coming up here. Number 30 yesterday.
2: Yesterday, the, uh, a fourth kind of musical journey movie you have on this. I was very disappointed by yesterday. Oh, no. Um, I love The Beatles. Um, I was very disappointed by this movie. Uh, I'm not going to say anything more than that. I want you to develop your own opinions. Um, people I've talked to yesterday, i looked at it with too critical of an eye. And I... I may have, but that's the way I look at movies. But I was disappointed in in yesterday.
1: Okay, that's that one. Thirty one. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. That's the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers story.
2: So I have not seen this yet either. Um, so, but it is—it's high up on my cues to find a way to watch it. Um, but I—I I mean, I've heard Tom Hanks is great. I've heard that. I heard the movie is very good. Just—just naturally, like a good movie. I've heard it come to. I heard what people talk about it. I compare it to the post, another Tom Hanks, the uh, Tom Hanks Meryl Streep movie. It was just good. It's going to get some award attention. Everything about it is just good, and it's you're going to walk out going, this is just a good, good quality movie.
1: That's awesome to know. And the last three heavy hitters, I'm curious to see where they land on the list. Number thirty two, Knives Out.
2: Ooh, Knives Out is going to be very, very high because that's probably one of the most fun I had in the movie theater last year. Nice out was going to be in your top ten without a doubt. Put it that
1: way. I'm not surprised. Next one, another award winner, a candidate this year,
2: 1917. Nineteen seventeen is the most beautiful movie I've seen in recent memory. The cinematography on this movie, I mean, I was aroused in the movie theater. I saw it twice in the movie theater just to see the cinematography. I brought my dad to see it the second time I saw it. So, I was like, you have to see this movie. I was gawking at the color schemes that Roger Deacon's used in certain sequences and the one takes. This was the most beautifully made movie, just from strictly a visual standpoint last year. It was not the best movie. It should not have won at the Oscars, um, which I'm glad it didn't, but it got the recognition that it deserved because it's still a crowning achievement.
1: All right, and last but not least, our Oscar winner for Best Picture, Parasite.
2: Oh, right. Parasite's going above John Wick because Parasite is the most recent addition to the, my favorite movies of all time. Uh, this movie is literally perfect. I, I've re-watched it for three or four times. I've watched it with three different people, two different people, and they've come out going, oh my God, that movie, no idea what was happening. My favorite thing is my buddy Mike Ritz was watching it, and he, he loves to text me when he's watching new movies that he's known I've seen. And he, I had 45 unread text messages because I stepped away for 20 minutes of him at the end of this movie going, watch out for this, Oh, my God. <laughs> this movie kicks ass. It is awesome, awesome, awesome. It's, it's there, when I freaked out when this one Best Picture, as you know. So uh, Parasite is incredible. Yes. No, it's just incredible.
1: Yeah, so that's the complete DVD cue right now. So, what what are your thoughts on the over now that you've got the entire picture?
2: So, now that I've got the entire picture, you definitely need some romantic comedy in your life. You need to throw in some romance, throw in some comedy, throw in some levity. You have a lot of serious topics here. you got to be able to laugh a little bit. Uh, you don't have any oldies. You are not a fan of the old movies. you got to throw in some ancient epics or some movies from the 60s, 70s beforehand. Uh, get get a little bit of movie culture in your life you gotta throw in maybe a black and white um, and then you gotta throw in a horror I don't know if you're a fan of horror I understand horror is not for everybody so before I put my three movies on the list that you should watch um, I will I will avoid horror if you don't like horror because I understand it's not for everybody
1: yeah I'm not like I tend not to be a horror guy it's usually my like a genre I tend to avoid like A Quiet Place by the first no, I, I venture it. in that direction
2: all right, so I will, not, I will not recommend a horror movie. Um, quiet Place is it's definitely the scariest movie you'll see on this list. And if you're not a fan of horror, you'll think there are definitely some jumpy moments. Um, but otherwise, it's a pretty good list. You got some award winners. You got some blockbusters. You got some in-between, uh, like When We Were Kings. Uh, I mean, that won an Oscar, but I've never heard of it before. So, so you've got When We Were Kings, though, on my mind. And um, I'm going to have to check that one out. And The Catcher Was a Spy, never heard of that. Just didn't. Didn't know it existed.
1: All right. So don't, so pick, how about you pick your three, put them in the list. Don't tell me where they are. I want to be surprised when they pop up.
2: All right. So I'm going to filibuster here while I'm sorting through this list because
1: I'm I'm going through. I'll talk for a minute so while you can filibuster you can work for this stuff. So I think. Okay. Yeah. Please filibuster. Yeah. So this has been a fun exercise. A little bit of movie talk with John Stank. The next time John comes on, I think the thing we're going to discuss really is sort of the idea John has brought up off the air, I think, is very interesting. It's sort of like a look at how like the state of the movie industry might get changed as a result of this coronavirus pandemic. Because now we're starting to see some studios shift stuff to, you know, like online online delivery only. We saw Trolls World Tour get pushed online, and now uh, a couple of a couple of the major studio chains are upset with with a uh, universe. I forget which company put it out, but they said they're not going to screen their movies anymore. We have talks of Disney. Disney moved Hamilton. The they were actually doing a motion picture release of the original play. They moved that up to just a Disney Plus release in July. I feel like yeah, but I feel like now with like this whole atmosphere of like you know like lesser economy, like less disposable income people, you wonder if people are gonna sit there for like two hours, pay fifteen dollars to go watch a movie, spend another ten on popcorn and a drink, and like that's something you. You don't know how it'll go. And John has some thoughts we'll share next time.
2: Yeah, we will share that next time. Uh, good job, filibustering there. You're a professional at this. Very well done. Um, I will tell you that I'm going with the theory with my list here. And I'm trying not to give you back-to-back superhero movies because I personally, I think the effect of a superhero movie gets washed out if you start watching too many of them in a row. Um, so I'm telling you right now that is a that's a theory that is going through my list here. Um so I have all of your movies here in order of the way that I would watch them and luckily I did some prep and I did some movies here that I think you should see. So let's see. Now here's a question. I knocked off Parasite because I you have it on your queue. Good job. Um now I wanna I wanna make sure you haven't seen these movies. So have you seen the Lighthouse? No you've not seen the lighthouse all right the lighthouse is going to go pretty high up because that movie is trippy um so we're gonna go we're gonna do this we're gonna put the lighthouse there all right i'm going to throw on a romantic comedy this is a deep cut romantic comedy that not many people have seen but i think is is one that's very enjoyable and it was on netflix for a long time i don't know if it still is but it's i think it's a great one um your sister's sister I've not seen it. never heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah, I don't think. No, you never heard of it. Now here's the thing. I noticed that wa- I noticed that on this list you have you have action hero action movies, if you will, like superhero action movies with lasers or whatever. You don't have like a gritty, like just just it's just like a like a guilty pleasure action movie that's just absurd and the acting is overacting and stuff like that. You don't have one of those. So I'm debating between a movie like that or going with an older black and white movie with some culture and some history behind it. Not saying you aren't uncultured, but one that has gotten critical praise for being how good it was at the time it's still holding up now. You know what? Do both. You know what? I love that answer. That's a great answer, and I'm very glad that you said it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put on a movie that's classy and that is considered one of the best movies of all time. So I'm putting that on the list there. So we're going to do that. And then I'm going to put on my guilty pleasure movie, my favorite guilty pleasure movie of all time. Um, This is the movie that me and my cousin have recasted countless, 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 countless numbers of times. But I want to put it at the bottom of the list because objectively it's not that great of a movie, but you will love it for how bad it is. Because it's amazing and it's perfect and there's nothing bad about it. Okay. All right. So I have my list. I'm okay. ready. Okay. All right. So I'm going to run through these slowly so it, or so you can write them down, or I can send you the Word doc after, too, so you can have it.
1: Yeah. You uh, could, so you don't know, you need
2: to freak it out.
1: Yeah. You can send me the Word doc. We'll, listen, we'll make this for, easy for the listeners, too. I'll post the list online.
2: How about that? That's a great way. So I'll read down this kind of slowly. Um, but first is Parasite. You got to see it, it's incredible on both a watch standpoint just from entertainment and both from a critical standpoint in terms of the way it's made and the way it's written remarkable that's number one we got john wick john Wick two john Wick three or two through four just because it's my favorite action series of all time those are the only kind of pure action movies you have on this list besides um actually, yeah those are only like the three action movies you have on the list that are superhero related um and you got to see those stars born number five I, I really, I want a picture of your tears after you, after you've seen <laughs> this movie. I, I need, I need, I need proof. Um, we're going, A Quiet Place at 6. so uh, it's, it's so unique, a horror movie. And you have to watch it with, uh, you can't be at any food, because it needs to be really quiet. And you need to all the lights off. You need to. So basically, um, 11, o'clock, out.
1: 11 o'clock at night for that one, basically.
2: Yeah, yeah basically. Knives Out is after a quiet Place because Ryan Johnson, again, a really well written movie. And we'll go from well written to really well made. Nineteen seventeen is after Knives Out. So after nineteen seventeen though, you might be feeling a little dour after a war movie. And they might need some uplifting spirits. That's where we watch Christopher Robin to rediscover your sense of innocence. Is that a ten you know, to kind of feel you know, yes, yeah, that's a ten to build up your to build up your childhood again. So that's Christopher Robin.
1: I will say since I would say same spots in the original list.
2: Well, there we go. So perfect timing. <laughs> but then, Mike, we're going to strip away your innocence again, and we're going to confuse the hell out of you. Because I'm throwing the lighthouse in at number 11. Because right now we're in a quarantine, we're isolated, and this is one of the weirdest, most well acted, craziest isolation movies I've ever seen. It is bonkers, crazy. This movie uh, stars William Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And you, you watching it, you will be so confused, but it's going to stick with you when it's over. There are still visages from this movie that either haunt or, or put enjoyment in my dreams. And I don't know which way it is, because I'm still confused about the movie, but it's in the best way possible. So that's number 11. Uh, then we're going to make you happy again. We'll throw on Rocket Man. Uh, because Karen Edgerton in this movie said, happy-go-lucky, sing some songs, be happy. Uh, you'll be inspired, and you'll continue to be inspired when you watch Apollo 11. America, right? We'll, uh, we'll tell you the inspiring story of Elton John across the pond. We'll bring it back to America with a really well-made documentary. But then we're going to go into the depravity of America, the chaos with Joker. I think Joker's higher up on this list than probably you might have thought it might have been, but it's a movie again you need to make your own opinion on and it's I mean if you're gonna take away all morality and all sense of uh, of happiness from Apollo Eleven, then Joker's the movie to do it. I'm sending you on an emotional road, Mr. Mike. I really am.
1: It's gonna be I'm a sending you on an emotional road, This is the awesome be on this um, right.
2: Yeah. Uh, so after Joker we have Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, the documentary again to relift your spirits after Joker to show you there's happiness in the world and that there are good people. Because what? Spoiler, the Joker's not a good guy. Um, After Won't You Be My Neighbor, we'll get to Deadpool 2. So Won't You Be My Neighbor is G-rated, lovely for everybody. Deadpool 2 is R-rated, not for everybody. So that's the segue there. After Deadpool 2, we go from the unclassiest and most depraved superheroes to a classy, a black-and-white, Orson Welles classic the Third Man This is the this is my culture pick for you This is my cinema history pick This has one of the best Character reveals of all time If not number one It is Masterfully done in this movie And it comes at the perfect time So The Third Man Comes after Deadpool 2 on your queue And that one, I don't know if you've heard of it before But it is excellent
1: I have not heard of it before so I'm excited to see where this goes
2: it is, it's very good. I will make a little bit of a longer movie, so plan your day out for it. But it's, it's very, very good. Um, so after the third man, we have When We Were King, uh, that uh, Muhammad Ali documentary. That's high up there because I don't know much about it, but it sounds like a great story. So I put that up in the top half of the list. Uh, we're just going, going to go on a series of happy movies here. We're going to go Shazam. But it's just a happy action action hero movie. A lot of happiness there, a lot of laughs. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. Again, centering around the happiness of Mister Rogers. I do think there are some darker themes in that movie, but I haven't seen it to be sure. But that, that's where, that's what I'm putting that literally like right in the middle of the pack yeah. because it's just again it's gonna be a good quality movie. Uh, so we got Shazam, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Then we go Aquaman. Get to some quippy one-liners. Um, and after that we're going to throw you into the culture of Ready Player One I think you're going I think you are going to love Ready Player One more than most if I had to guess I think you're going to love it I think you're going to be upset that it's this far down low in the queue <laughs> so hey. for that I apologize hey
1: I trust you Judge um, thank you
2: um, I believe the, is this the first Marvel movie that I have on the list I have the Incredible Hulk, uh, which I mean, to your viewers, is probably blasphemy. Like they're probably turning this off right now, and I apologize, but I like this movie more than most. So, the Incredible Hulk um, is, is the first Marvel movie I have on your queue. You
1: know,
2: I... uh, then I'm going in.
1: What? So you know what? I can def- I can defend that. Also, it's also the last one I've seen at that point is Iron Man, so it'll be the next chronologically as well. So that also helps.
2: That's, that's true, That you're right. Um, I was definitely thinking about making this list, for sure. <laughs> uh, next, we got Invincible uh, with Mark Wahlberg and Polly. Hopefully, by this time, maybe we have some football to be watching. I don't know how long it takes you to go through movies, but that's what I would put next. Uh, that'll be followed up by Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, after Invincible. Then we're going to go back to Inspiring Human Story with Blinded by the Light. Um, And we'll follow that up with Captain America The First Avenger. Again, people love this movie for Captain America. I really just didn't like this movie too much. Um, Even though it's Tommy Lee Jones and it kind of sparks off the true hero of the Marvel Universe. I wasn't a big fan of the first movie. I just didn't think it was that great. Um, All right. So after Captain America First Avenger, though, this is where we're going to go back to back with the Ken Burns, Jackie Robinson documentary. At first, I had a movie splitting this up, but I feel like once you watch the first one, you're going to immediately want to watch the second one. So I won't torture you with that. I'll put these back to back. Appreciate um, it. Next up, next up after this is my romantic comedy, Your Sister's Sister. You got to add some levity. got to add some happiness into your life. This movie's not always happy, but I think it's really subtle in its comedy, and I enjoyed it really much. I was blown away the first time I saw it. wasn't expecting much and came away very happy. So, That's Your Sister's Sister. Uh, Then we have Captain Marvel after that, followed by Dumbo, which I have not seen. Um, But it's a Disney live action, so I probably should eventually watch it because Disney runs the world. But it's, sorry, I'm just not that inspired by it. After it, I had Yesterday. Uh, So that is the last... No, I lied. It's the second to last of the music movies. Let's be real. Second to last. (laughs) Because... There's a reason. There's one. There's one later after it. Now, after yesterday, this is my guilty pleasure, Mike. This is my movie where you're you're going to be watching. They're going to be going. What is this lovable, terrible, amazing piece of garbage that I have on my screen right now? This movie is called Highlander. Have you seen it? No. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. Well, Mike, there can be. Only one, and that one is Highlander. This movie rocks. It is um, it's my ultimate guilty pleasure movie. I rewatched it and did and did a big ass blog on it the other day. Love Highlander. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, so after Highlander is the movie I know nothing about. The Catcher was was the Spy. Don't know anything about that movie. Just don't have no idea. Um, and then so after The Catcher was Spy. I have Justice League. uh, Then I have Iron Man 2. Then I have Bohemian Rhapsody. And wrapping up, last and certainly least, is Fantastic Beasts 2, The Crimes of Wolves. Ouch. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, the last three in this list were cemented right away. Like, Iron Man 2, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Fantastic Beasts 2, they were separated from the rest because they are terrible. Like just it's nothing I, I had no desire to rewatch them ever again,
1: yeah, well that that was very helpful, John. I do appreciate you spending almost an hour breaking down the my movie preferences here and helping me find the right order to view this in and most eggs some new stuff that's gonna be very interesting for my for me to go through these next couple of months in quarantine,
2: yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they most of the movies are new for you that you're not rewatching. in uh, fact, that I think most of them are except for the Marvel movies, you're probably rewatching, but um, yeah, no, listen, watching new movies is the way to go. I've seen plenty of them in quarantine. My movie list has grown, grown, grown. So this is the perfect there's no better time to be watching movies than right now.
1: Yeah, indeed. And speaking of like T V, like oh, we'll go back to T V for one second. So like I know every week I have somebody on here i ask them what's some shows they're watching. I know you've been covering uh I think the one of the Bachelor spinoffs on the on your blog, Stanko stands. Want to talk about that? In oh those, yeah, some stuff you're watching. Listen to listen to your heart, baby. Listen to your heart. This movie, or sorry, this TV show, should
2: have been hot garbage, but I have enjoyed every single week of it. Um, I don't know why. I'm in the bag for the Bachelor Universe. I thoroughly, I text friends during it, just bashing the bashing the contestants. I do a running dialogue of my inner thoughts for my blog. Listen to your heart. I've been watching. Um, I've also been watching The Last Dance, as you know. Um, But I will say, I have been DVRing The Last Dance on Sundays to watch a different TV show by the name of Killing Eve on Sundays. Have you heard of Killing Eve? I have. Killing Eve is excellent. Have you watched Killing Eve?
1: I have not yet.
2: Killing Eve is is very, very good. The first two seasons are on Hulu, and I couldn't recommend it more. Season three has been pretty good thus far. Uh, Villanelle is one of my all time TV female movie, uh, ultimate TV crushes of all time. She's amazingly evil, and it's great. So that's the TV show I've been watching, as well as uh, a show show called Marcella on Netflix, another BBC crime show. This one's much darker. Uh, and more depressing than Killing Eats. But I I binged Marcella uh, in three days. I watched 16 episodes. They're all, they're all an hour long. I binge watched it. And then I also binge watched The Bodyguard. Another. I'm going through a British TV show kick right now. Um, and so those are the TV shows that I've watched over the past month.
1: All right, good stuff, John. Thanks for all the time. Today. I really appreciate it. And going ex- giving people all the stank they could possibly want for a very long time and more. But before I let you go, a lot of people don't have follow on social media and keep up with Stanko's Stance.
2: Yeah, I have the blog, stankostance.wordpress.com. Feel free to go and give it a click. Eventually, do my reviews and my reactions. Uh, also, follow me on Twitter, jstanko99. Uh, on Instagram, Twitter, all social media platforms. Mike, I finally caved. I made a TikTok. Yes. I wouldn't say go check out my profile yet by any means, but I'm also jstanko99 on TikTok as well now.
1: All right. I'm hip with the kids. Yeah, he's, he is hip with the kids. You can check out Stanko on TikTok. Thanks, John. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Sam Smith, for calling in to discuss his time covering Michael Jordan the Chicago Bulls in the early, late 90s. A lot of good stories from Sam Smith there. And the great John Stanko, as always, for helping me cover the finale of The Last Dance and his time... And, helping me rearrange my Netflix queue and talking some movies in the process there. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including a look at one project I've been working on behind the scenes here, called It's Out of Here, a history of the home run, a thesis documentary I've been putting together for Iona College, check out the blog over we justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify, all the usual suspects. Search for Just End the Suffering There. And you will find all episodes there, including some really long ones of late, but really goodies. I recommend you keep going through those archives, catch up, check out all these episodes, a lot of fun stuff. You can also search me on YouTube, Mike Phillips on YouTube. All these individual segments will go up, so if just want to hear Sam Smith talking bowls, that's up there. Both of the John spots will be up there. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings as well. Those are very important to help make the show even better going forward. I please beg you guys. Please leave these ratings. They do mean a lot. They do help us get in the ears of more people. That would mean a lot to me. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. You can tweet me at the hashtag sickness If you believe Sam Smith's theory on the flu game, hashtag Altoosickness, you may on this week's podcast. Next week, I'll be talking golf. PJ coming back soon. Our golf guy, DND Martini, will be here. Legal correspondent, Phil right also on the horn to break down some logistics and more. Until then, I hope be you have a better week than jazz fans. This has been the Just
0: End the Suffering Podcast.
1: I'm out.